beats coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. Hello there. My name is Tom Trick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Straight Out of Compton. I apologize for those uh, lyrics. We should have a warning sticker on this podcast. Uh, I am here with Christian, Christian Middlinski. Uh, no, no. Uh, uh, I'm the Stanley Roper of this podcast. If with our straight out of Compton tagline, Kelly Wand, what do you have for us? He's more like the Mr. Furley. <laughs> uh, that wasn't it. <clears throat> oh, right, right. That's the joke. Oh, um. <clears throat> it's like Fury Road, but with cars. Dingus, do you understand that one? No. Mm. I don't think I do either. Yeah, Kelly, right. Kelly, that one went over our heads. Uh, we're like the marketing executives walking, or the record studio producers walking out of the club. Uh, you got something else for us. You guys are like the DJ who thinks I got to sing more about pussy and less about bullets. Huh. Uh, Alonso is his name, uh, and... Oh, that's his name. Timmy's the name of the kid in White House Down. <laughs> Kelly, uh, want you to start a backup tagline, or is that all you got? Yeah. That's all you got, it's cool. No, what? All right. You think that's all I got after this much time? It's like Jersey Boys, but as a period piece. It's like Fat Boys, but with fewer carbs. I like Fat Burger more than Lobster. I did oh. that line, too. I, I was Kelly, Wand, I like that last one. Because that at that point I was like I don't he's getting a better deal I don't yeah. understand what his his problem is right yeah you're, are you eating a bug or are you eating a cow come on exactly dingus right lobster's gross it's got and there's no meat on a, a fat burger's motherfucking tight yo there's plenty of meat but what you're really eating is butter we just can't like, just yeah. can get butter a spoon and eat some butter it's also a cockroach it's like a sea cockroach that's you don't why have to convince me yeah. As opposed to the fat burger. That's why all the butter is on it. I mean, how else are you going to eat a cockroach? You I gotta, know. Yeah. Uh, Kelly Wan, do you have an IMDb plot synopsis for us before we continue talking about Straight Out of Compton? If you read us the synopsis, Kelly Wan, I'll bet me and Dingus could guess the movie. What did you call right. the name? What did you call the movie just now, Tom? What, I Straight Out of Compton is what it's called. What did I say? You said uh, Straight Out of Compton. You know, like banana in the tailpipe. Oh, right. That's, no, yeah. Uh, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry I enunciated so much. You're not supposed to be. It's outa. Yeah. yeah. I, Wait, Jamadi does that too, though. He goes, he says that at one point in the movie. So, yeah, so in our album, Straight Out of Compton. I, you didn't no, notice if that. If there's any question, I don't know if the listeners know this. If there is any question, I am white. I just want you guys to. I don't say outa. Uh, yeah. I, I can't do it. I don't even know what I am because I I don't see that. I look I'm in the mirror. The streets, yeah. So I just see a man. Well, sometimes. Biggest <laughs> sees a man, Tom. Why didn't you tell me this? All right, here's it's the movie. Me. <laughs> Tom's not laughing. He's Sorry, I was. I had you guys on mute and was taking that opportunity to take a drink. I apologize. I thought it was funny. <laughs> All right. I thought this was funny. Pretty, yeah, I thought it was funny. Straight out of Compton. Uh, all right. Well, I think you've proven that you're white. Um, here's the movie. Guess it. A young singer dates a disc jockey who helps her get into the music business, but their relationship... Glitter. Be- Damn! Wow, Dingus. Nicely Dingus. done. I've never seen that, but it seemed 
seemed possible. I saw it to make fun of it, and it was actually funny. I remember a long time ago, but I don't remember anything about it. That's the thing with like Jennifer Lopez in it. No, it's uh, Mariah Carey. Oh, Mariah Carey. Yeah, and the DJ is white, but they both talk black, and they're like, "Yeah, get the fuck out of here." What is it that Mariah Carey's in when she plays a social worker and she's really good? Is it Precious? Oh no! Like, I, no, I think it's something I've actually seen. No. The cell. I, oh, I, I thought it was Precious that, uh, that which has more words in the title, which elude me right now. But uh, she's in something where she plays a social worker, and I saw it, and then afterwards it's like, whoa, that was Mariah Carey because she was really good. Um, huh. and maybe I should see Glitter. Maybe you should. Uh, you should yeah. do a you should do a glitter blog. <laughs> yeah, it's glitterblog.com taken. Uh, I'm gonna nobody listening take that. I call tibs. It's a glog. <laughs> well thing is congratulations for uh for recognizing he glitter. Did, it's quite he a, got it right like it was one, the, it was one sentence long and I didn't even finish the sentence. And he knew like, it from the, the basic premise. Like all that stuff is probably in what, the first fifteen minutes? Like Dingus like recognized it that quickly. The part I didn't read was, but their relationship become complicated as she ascends to superstardom. Dingus didn't need that. Right. He's like, oh, this jockey, you sing her. Boom. Glam. I almost called it glamour, actually. Totally narrows it down. There's only one movie where a singer gets screwed over. Getting into the music business. Speaking of movies where singers get screwed over, Dingus, what did we see this week? This week we saw Straight Outta Compton. Mm. A 2015 American drama biographical music movie about the entire history of the group N.W.A. Mm. It was directed by F. Gary Gray and written by Jonathan Herman and Andrea Berloff. Mm. It stars O'Shea Jackson Jr., Corey Hawkins, Jason Mitchell, and Paul Giamatti. (gasps) (laughs) Spoiler alert. God. That was Christopher Lloyd. That sounded like Christopher Lloyd. I don't know. Marty. Paul Giamatti? Marty! That's um, kind of a sad one. Sad Christopher Lloyd. Uh, hey, here comes my favorite part. Straight Outta Compton is rated R. Oh, yeah. There's no smoking. For length Except- throughout, mm-hmm. strong sexuality slash nudity, mm-hmm. violence, mm. and drug use. Uh, there's some smoking of ass. Smokes with some asses. <sighs> uh, Straight Outta Compton is doing amazingly well. I think Universal is somewhat taken aback by how well it's done. Uh, we're recording this after the weekend that it opened, so we have the benefit of hindsight to know that it was number one. Uh, I wrote for two weeks in a row, but I'm pretty sure it was number one for three weeks in a row. Uh, after being out for five weeks, it's made $155 million. Uh, and it's one of Universal's big hits this year. Yeah. Uh, it's on its opening weekend, $60 million. I think it was number one this weekend. I might be wrong. No, 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 no. It's down to – it steadily drops. I mean, as expected, it went like one, 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 three, five. I think it was six this weekend. Maybe maybe it's five this weekend. What was number one as opposed to below? Tell me you make more inside jokes so the listeners have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm just asking questions. What are you talking about? This is an inside joke. Uh, it doesn't mean? matter what was number one because let's talk about Straight Outta Compton. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, which is the percentage of the reviews that are positive, Straight Outta Compton is at 89%. <sighs> on Metacritic, which is the average rating from various reviews, Straight Outta Compton is at 72 if your movie makes more money than the percentage, it's a success. Rotten Tomatoes percentage. 
Mm, I'm not if you sure. get an 80%. Where, maybe. yeah, your formula is, I can make your formula fall apart. Well, that's not that hard. I know. But, Kelly One, I would like you now to um, <laughs> give us a plot synopsis of Straight Outta Compton. Uh, maybe, here's what I would call it. You ready for this? Uh-huh. A Straight Outta Compton synopsis. Did I get it this week? Wait, did you just say straight out of Compton synopsis? I should have, but I actually think I got the title right that time. I better concentrate on the synopsis part at the end. So I'm going to hold on to out of. Wait, which, which one of you is speaking now? Is it Tom or Kelly? I can't tell. One, you're so in my head. You know exactly what I'm thinking. Ooh! <laughs> Remember? I liked, better when, I liked better when we made fun of Bingus for standing up during Star Trek Dark World or whatever. Nice. Going, nice. Yeah, let's go back to that. Oh, now I'm standing up, am I? <laughs> yeah, I, did you? He totally stood up, he pumped his fist, and he That's went, nice, as the Enterprise rises up out of clouds. And then I did he a mic standing. drop and I left. <laughs> we out. As if he's the one that made that happen. which was Yeah, what, what well, the Enterprise happen. stood up, so he's standing up. That's right. And the chair is the cloud, and he's all, out of the way, cloud. Nice! That's right, what everyone, we can't avoid this for very long. I mean, there's no more avoiding this. This is going to happen. This is inevitable. I can't wait. Uh, what do you call this week's synopsis? Oh, you can't avoid hearing what the title's called? Is that what you mean? A synopsis. This is a, a, I'm expecting a force of nature or something along those lines. Uh, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to put any demands on you. No. Why don't you start? Give us the title of it, and then give us the content. Straight out of Compsis, Compsis, Compsis. Nice echo effect. Well done. <clears throat> no, there's three of me, and the acoustics. Warning: racism and bad acting sound similar. The short one goes to a house with some angry black men in it. He's all, yo, Sinbad, I put that gun on my spare tire, drove over just like you asked. Still seems a bit convoluted, but you the fool. One of Sinbad's bouncers is all, Yo, motherfucking stand up, little man. This is Sinbad y'all are squeaking at. He's all, I am standing. All the bitches and hoes laugh good-naturedly and high-five. A police takes a gun turret smashes through the door. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough setup for that. A white law enforcement official pops his head out of the hatch, raises a megaphone, and goes, Attention, residential black people. This is in response to a noise complaint. The tank smashes through the front door and starts rolling over everything and everybody in the house, accompanied by General Lee horn blasts. <laughs> I look over at Flavor Flav and go, being a front door would be dope. Sinbad's all, hey, break my window, run across my rooftop until the title screen. I'll hold him off by doing these drugs. He's all, cool, by the way, I ain't short. These bars are just set wide apart. Pop in the tank catch, raises a Molotov and goes, Scatter! He flings it down into the hatch, setting his legs on fire. He shakes his head at the white man's burden and runs across a rough top as one of the white cops handcuffs one of the black cops and they start arguing heatedly. <laughs> Some words in a ghetto font are all straight out of compsis. A black man's listening. <laughs> See, I stood up when I read that, so I think this might be... A black man's listening to some music and making hand gestures. He's all, man, that chocolate clay head from the Lionel Richie video looks motherfucking delicious, yo. Some words in a Gary Marshall font are all, this is someone portraying teenage Dr. Dre, the 80s. 
his mom saw. Damn it, intern! Y'all missed another interview again because you was making hand gestures. Lord Jesus, where does it end? But Ma, the position I was interviewing for was procrastinator. She slaps him. She's all, don't y'all sass me, boy. When you was born, everybody said you'd end up in jail. They said that when I was a baby. She slaps him again. She's all, and that I'd end up in jail for child abuse. She slaps him again. Okay, look, maybe we should see a therapist, Ma. She slaps him again. Meanwhile, on a moving school bus, Ice Cube's making harump face number 36. One of the other students on the bus is a colorful character. He rolls down his window, sees a black man with a gun driving by, and shouts, Hey, OJ, ha-ha, you picked running away south in Capricorn 1. No rattlesnake for you, bitch. OJ uses his car's brakes to stop the bus and knocks courteously on its door with his gun. The bus driver lets him on. As OJ scowls ominously past, the school bus driver's all, Yo, the kid in 14A was also kind of annoying me earlier. <laughs> Long as you're up. OJ makes a speech to the kids about geography. Ice Cube makes a troubled face and scribbles in his notebook. Chorus, rap, rap, motherfucking refrain, parentheses, something here that rhymes with school bus. I lean over to an anaconda and whisper, Irkwood. Wow. Speaking of Jennifer Lopez. See? I lean over an anaconda, double, double meaning, and whisper, Urkel would make a good Jaden Smith. My anaconda don't want none if you ain't got buns, huh? Oh my gosh. Look at her butt. Huh, dingus? Huh. Ice Cube goes to a house with a wife and breastfeeding kid in it. He's all, yo, that bedroom right there down the hall where all the loud music's coming from. My friends in there by any chance? A female says yes, and Ice Cube proceeds on his journey. He comes in to see Dr. Dre doing stuff with some record albums, while someone's brother nods enthusiastically and sits on a chicker. Ice Cube nods, too, as the music progresses, then opens his notebook and writes, Something that rhymes with nods. Then aloud, he's all, Damn, Dre, that shit is dope. What you call it? Dre's all, Call what? What? Both my turntables is broken. Can't you hear? I think the song has something to do with ties, though. Man. Hollow notes are two of the good ones. The other black person's all. And mom kicked him out of the house for getting slapped. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Ice Cube nods thoughtfully. Oh, I get it. It's sort of like when you eat too many mushrooms at a carnival after Google Maps takes you through a bunch of woods and then you ride one of them whirly, twisted roller coaster rides that makes your stomach all upset. Then you all walk down a freeway. Nothing opsis worthy happens till nightfall. Then as Ice Cube's leaving, some cop cars screech onto the front yard and a dozen cops draw guns on him. One's all, Freeze, do not lie to me, perp, or so help me, I will abuse the system. I'll ask the questions here. Where's your master, and who did you rob the black skin from? One of their neighbors is Cuba Gooding Jr., unfortunately. Nothing about that actor's name is true. He argues property tax minutia with the cops while Ice Cube walks off, scribbling in his notebook, something here that rhymes with Struther Hucker. <laughs> that one's I just for you. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. He walks to a house that Dr. Dre now lives in, wearing different clothes. Dre's all, okay, time to go to Florida. They all go to a club called Damn. As they walk up to a black person wearing yellow clothes, some words are all actor portraying future third guy in the band. 
a manager comes out wearing gold cock rings and a hat. He comically bellows, Okay, people, place this, please. And remember, only songs about pussy, not murder. We focus grouped it in Ohio, but still. Trace all. But pistols are a trench in erotic metaphor since the early 1300s. The crafty managers all. Nigga, shut the fuck up. Do you young people make bad decisions? I didn't think so. Now I think I know a couple more things too about what you young people into these days and a couple you young people. So get out there, no young people. You'll be hearing me use this same tone for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Ice Cube sings a song about the follies of identity. Then the cops show up outside and arrest Dre for standing. I look over at Vanilla Ice and go, Hey, from now on, my rap name's Alien Cubed. They talk E into financing a jam session, but forget they can sing until after they pay for some upstairs that none of them know or like. <laughs> e winds up singing the lyrics himself and going through puberty on the third try. A machine makes a cupcake with a record label on it. One night after they sing a song about how untrustworthy white people are, albino Paul Giamatti leads E backstage to his filing cabinet workspace from American Splendor and goes, Hello, E. You sing like a woman one-third your size. Here, allow me to carry you. Damn it, I ain't short. Just take the boxes. E, I want to help you, help you, help you. So I'll only be charging you 80% to start. There'll be a lot of paperwork involved. If you can't take hearing me whine about it, I guess you should walk out of this cargo container right now. But I'll sue you. Man, is that going to be your hair and normal speaking voice for the next two hours? Ah, exceptional. That's what your name should be short for. No offense. Damn it, I... E, not to cut you short, no offense, but I'd like you to introduce myself to a friend of ours. He's white like me, but with brown hair. A white person extends his hand and goes, Seppi, love whatever your music is. Heap em, cool em. Hey, listen, I've been making literally a shitload of money off the California Raisins, so naturally I thought, black people. A couple concerts later, Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, gentlemen, but the EPA gave us this envelope. It says that one of your songs is too slow. I say we don't play it till they change their minds. What the fuck, Jamadi? Whatever happened to freedom of speech? That was the First Amendment, Dre. Emancipation wasn't until the 13th, 14th. Anyway, see what happens when you get lawyers involved? Lincoln. Ice Cube makes her rump face number 44, opens his notebook and writes, something that rhymes with abs naturally. The next night at the concert, they sing the famous song that the EPA cops and Sting can't stand. The crowd cheers, boo the police, then boos, yay the police. The cop raises a megaphone. He's all, Attention, the musical group on stage right now, known as uh, American Africans with Smiles. We find your song, Fuck Us, very hurtful. We're only trying to our best to protect people from hearing you. We believe the only true music is police sirens. What? <laughs> Also, in accordance with Section 6 of Concert Safety, suggesting to the general public that they should have sex with us. Sounds awesome, actually. Now get in this van. As the police van driver accidentally swallows his keys, the concert goers ready the burning trash that they brought to hurl at their favorite rap stars, and now douse the cops with it instead. The cop raises his bullhorn again and goes, Attention audience members, immediately desist. Trash is not a toy. Please return to enjoying your concert in peace. I look over at Black Me and go, 
A couple weeks ago, a girl in a sex museum told me Satan has the coldest penis. More things happen. Finally, Paul Giamatti gives Ice Cube a contract. Ice Cube's all. What the fuck? Shouldn't I show this to a lawyer? Cube, please, how do you think hotel rooms get paid for? Oh, I get it. So it's sort of like when you hotbox a hotel room so y'all forget your wall safe combination, but Google mixes up hotel and hostel so y'all spend the night with the Queen of Gravenstein and four textile factory workers from Ghent. Cube, please, don't open the notebook. Listen to me closely. Everything I do, I do for one of us. Man, fuck this. From now on, I'm going to deal with a white person my brain tells me I can trust. Six minutes later, what the fuck, Brian? Y'all said if I worked for free, you wouldn't rip me off. What can I say, Cubes? My hands are literally tied. This nuclear reactor is a monetary value. Hey, what's with the bat? Cricket season doesn't start for ten seconds. Ice Cube destroys his own Grammys with a bat, and then they sign some paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in Ice Cube's brown study. Hey, baby, how's Ghost of Mars coming? Motherfucking dope, yo. <laughs> I'm almost on page one. <laughs> This motherfucking movie show's gonna make Mac and me look like motherfucking sorcerer. I for real, you. Y'all can motherfucking say that shit again. Aw, oh, yeah. Motherfucking tell my ass about it. Word. Y'all can motherfucking say that shit again. Who dat? Motherfucking tell my ass about it. God damn, cuz. Y'all can motherfucking say that shit again. So it is garbage. Motherfucking tell my ass about it. Y'all know what I say when it's Miller time. But he absolutely doesn't. Meanwhile, E trips over a coffee table. He wakes up in a hospital being scrutinized by his wife and a frowning doctor. The doctor's all, I'm afraid I have some very upsetting news for you and your son here, ma'am. Damn it, I'm a husband. This bed's just long. The doctor's all, uh, so getting back to, hang on, let me check your chart here. Yes, upsetting. Mr. and Mrs. E, I'm afraid your coffee table's totally destroyed. Also, when he has AIDS. Now, we're still running tests, but it just doesn't sound like the table's very interested. Dre barges in. He's all, what the fuck, E? I thought I was your doctor. He's all, doc, can you repeat that AIDS pot again, please? The doctor's all, Ugh. well, I'm no expert, but looks like you got it from 76 prostitutes simultaneously. The wife's all, say what? You got it down to 76? Oh, baby, I'm so proud of you. The doctor's all, it's tragic, really. People of your stunted body type just don't have the same life expectancy as elves. Whatever. Fucking do your short jokes. I don't care anymore. The doctor puts pennies on his eyes, then goes, sorry, too big, and changes them to dimes. Uh, yeah. Dre honors his fallen friend by going to yet another untrustworthy manager and severing their business ties. He's yo, Shug, it's been almost two and a half hours. Pretty sure the audience gets it, so I'm out. I'm going to form my own label. Shug's all. The most pertinent question I can think of is, what will it be called? Dre's all. After MASH. Some clips show us what television used to look like. I look over at Ice Cube and go, okay, now I get everything about you except the Raiders. But he and his son are busy one auditorium over laughing at Mamie Gummer. The end. Uh, Kelly Wan, that was fearless. Thank you very much. Uh, I love your rendition of the events in Detroit. And your Paul Giamatti voice is certainly one for the ages. I'm working on Ice Cube. He's fun to do, but he's tough. Sure. Um, I I like, too, that you've uh, arranged... I like Tom! Very good, yeah. You like that I arranged what? Uh, Ice Ice Cube scowls 
like uh, numerically. Must <laughs> have taken a lot of work. He has like one of my favorite faces, so. But I'd so not like mine. I want to be him, and I can't be. It's awesome seeing his son have that same kind of smirk. It is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just really. I don't know if he if he was doing that. I mean, I'm sure he does some of. He can do an impression of his dad, but just the way the natural way his mouth looks. Yeah. Was perfect, heard, and he's also a good actor. I mean, what the heck? I heard a Bobcat Goldthwait podcast where he says like his uh-huh. daughter will come to audiences and go do the voice as so she like kind of ball busts him. And I was wondering if Ice Cube, if uh, O'Shea's acting in this was like him kind of trolling his dad a little bit, like this is how you talk. Well, I'm sure. He, I mean, people do that in families. They mess around like that. I bet he. I bet he just messed around and also just learned his dad. You know. No, he's, I know, got, he's got the genetics for it too. I mean, the yeah. way the way his mouth moves is perfect, and the way he just kind of sets his posture, everything that he does is so evocative of Ice Cube. It's just great and intelligent. Like it's, I don't know. It's like I, I read reviews where it's like Ice Cube's the aggressive one, but he's also always right all the time. I mean, they're the producers of the movie, so I think that's what makes it. Yeah, I also listened to an interview uh, that Jerry Heller gave. And, uh, you know, as much as, and I don't know, in, in, in later years here, um, Paul Giamatti's kind of get, started to get on my nerves a little bit. He nails the voice. I mean, it's kind of an impression of Jerry Heller's voice, although it's not that far from Paul Giamatti. I was going to say, I haven't seen Paul Like, Paul Giamatti is one of those guys who, I love him, but to me, he's always Paul Giamatti. Yeah, he is kind of, but he is he is getting that voice. He's getting the thing that, that Kelly Wand is, is taking into a into a Christopher Lloyd territory, and he is very much hitting the Jerry Heller voice, at least the one I heard in the interview that I listened to. Was Jerry Heller, Heller talking about the movie? Is that why he was being interviewed? Yeah, it was a really, it was a long extended interview where he's basically, you know, debunking a lot of the things that go on in the movie and what. Right, right. Uh, Musical well, by it. Yeah, someone uh, else, go first. Dingus, why don't you go first? Um, boy, if this movie were... Um, 45 minutes to an hour long, it wouldn't be a movie, but nevertheless, I would have loved it. Um, as it got more and more melodramatic and felt like it had to squeeze every single thing in, uh, I got less and less interested in it. Okay. So overall, I would say, um, I, I, mean, I guess I have to disagree with the, the consensus that everybody of everybody who loves it, um, because I feel like it kind of fell apart. I think that um, one of the things I love, and this is going to be a weird comparison, very weird comparison, um, but one of the things I love about the movie Lincoln, for instance, is that it, I, I, I went into that expecting this slavish biopic, and what I got was this sliver of, this is a moment in this guy's life, this very important moment in this guy's life that we all know about. That and, teaches and, us something about him, that like has, that it's sort of revelatory of his character, too. That that's exactly, an important part of the moment. Yeah. Exactly right. And, and I love that about it, and it was a surprise. Um, now, NWA doesn't necessarily uh, sit in the same uh, place as Lincoln, <laughs> of course, Um but I felt like the movie could have been a little more focused. I, I, there, there are a couple moments, and, I'll, and we'll get around to it. But, but as it started to get melodramatic, I kind of started to fade. Kelly, when you started oh. to say something about musical biopics or something, what, what were you? Um, well, I was just going to say I think they're the weirdest movie genre, and it's weird that they always win Oscars because comedies are less weird than them. But it's like you're making actors try to look like other artists, and then make them sing, and then if they sound kind of good then they get everything. And it's just like such a weird idea to like, yeah, we'll watch this. Does that so apply like, to straight out of Compton? 
Well, I was going to say, having said that, I loved it as a movie so much, and I felt the exact opposite as Dingus. Like, I wanted to just keep going because I loved these characters. And I think Dingus is right. It does sort of jump the shark, and it sort of becomes less fun after a certain point and sort of repetitive. And that's, you know, I think that's just the, the structure of their lives, unfortunately. It just gets less interesting once they make it. But I loved O'Shea Jackson. Did I say his name? I already forgot his name. He's O'Shea Jackson Jr., I believe. Is yeah, it, I is love... he credited as that, by the way? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. O'Shea Jackson Jr. Right. I thought it was one of the and especially a week after seeing Meryl Streep's daughter and her do like a mother daughter thing um, in a music movie. Like O'Shea Jackson, I, he was killing me. It was so fun to like watch him do Ice Cube. Um, and I liked the Dre guy too. It's less flashy. What were you saying, Dingus? I was going to say to to be fair to Mamie Gummer, I think that. A lot of that totally writing. All she had to do was look straight yeah, I know. all the time. No, no, yeah. It's Diablo Cody. Yeah. It, well, as the writing in this, I don't think, is is that great, but the directing's amazing. And I, I wanted to keep going. Like, I just wanted a whole TV series of just these characters in O'Shea Jackson's Ice Cube thing. So I actually felt like it wasn't long enough, although mm-hmm. I wish it had stayed in the same key as, like, the first half. It's like Apocalypse Now. Uh, how do you feel, Tom? Uh, I didn't care for it at all. I felt this was a movie of the week in which they say fuck a lot. Uh, Biggest use of the word melodrama uh, is perfect. Um, It gets ridiculously melodramatic. Uh, I think it whitewashes a lot of important things that it's talking about, uh, which I, as I was watching it, was kind of puzzled by. I had no idea they were the producers. So I think this is the sort of biopic you get when the people who it is about are the people who are paying for it. Yeah, it's a vanity uh, piece. It's a vanity so, piece, and I just, I, I think it's a terrible, I mean, there's a great story to be told here, and there's very important things about NWA that, that we should know. Right. Um, and I just hate that this becomes, you know, there's this, it's, it's another stereotypical, oh, creative people are taken advantage of by the industry, and they're misunderstood, and... Um, it didn't give me any insight into their creative process. Uh, we got that one brief scene where uh, Eric made everybody leave the studio for them to record Boys in the Hood. Uh, and after that, rap just happens. Like, yeah. you see him carrying around notebooks right. and stuff. Uh, so, no, I, I really disliked this a lot. I mean, and I didn't think the, the direction was good. I didn't care for any. Well, I kind of like the guy playing Easy E a little bit, but I, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't think O'Shea Jackson Jr. was any good. What? I you didn't like him? I thought, no, he looked great, by the way, and I loved seeing that smirk. But as an actor, I didn't really care for any of them. Uh, I wouldn't, like, go out of my way to see anything that they're in, for instance. It wasn't that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I didn't – there's really nothing here that I cared for, and I was disappointed with its treatment of a lot of, I think, important subjects. Well, what, can you elaborate on that? Like, I, I mean, start to stretch that out a little bit. Well, sure. So uh, – I did like how uh, it sets the stage for the culture in the 80s of, of, of Compton, of the, the tension between the police in the 80s, who are very different police than exists now, although yeah. it's now – I mean it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relevant subject now. Even though LAPD has changed a lot, the perception of the relationship of the police to minorities, specifically the black community, that's a very important topic now. So yeah. I love the way it set the stage there, um, and I love that line. That the cop has about uh, what is it, like LAPD is the only gang here. Like I loved that. That was great. So 
we've got this this great stage set about the tension between the police and the black community. Um, so I liked how it showed NWA being born out of that. Yeah. But from there, it just becomes a kind of a uh, – not an apology. What's the word for it? Uh, I mean the, the cops are just stereotypically evil bad guys. Yeah. Um, and they were certainly in the wrong, by the way, in this – in a lot. Um, but it's their lines. Well, just a lot of it just seemed really convenient, and I, I wanted to know more about that too, by the way. Uh, so I feel like that, and then we just show uh, clippings of the, the Rodney King beating. Um, so I liked the stage being set, and I just wish that they had done more with it. Mm, I don't think yeah. you're wrong, except for O'Shea Jackson. Okay, what were we going to say, Dingus? Sorry. No, go ahead, Kelly. But, like, when the cop is going, um, rap's not music. To like the manager, and they're just like, "No, you can get up." It's like, what? Well, that, like, what that feels, is that? That, that feels made so up. Funny. Yeah, totally made up. And like, they, all they, of they, that, they, all of that felt very staged, and it was cool that they had you know a black cop being one of the the guys in the, with the the police representing the evil side. But it just felt very staged and contrived and convenient. And I, you know, I just would have liked to have seen more of this context, like. Uh, more done with it. I mean, it's, it's the core of the movie, basically. Where did NWA come from? Why are they so angry? You know, what what's behind the lyrics of, of, of Fuck the Police? Um, and yeah, cops are all evil seemed to be the answer. What made it so personal for them? Because the things that happen to them in the movie is stuff that happens all the time, and it's just so generic. Um, yeah, you're right, basically. Uh, but oh, then Jamadi was out. Sorry, what? So, much of, so many of those scenes reminded me of things that um, that we were watching in 71 in a way. And I wish this movie had been focused like that movie. Well, it becomes, yeah. And, and, and I guess my expectations were we set the stage and then it just becomes another stereotypical, oh, you become a celebrity and you bicker with the other guys in the band and there's a falling out and you get back together. And all that stuff got left behind. And I guess in a way, maybe that's indicative of what happened to the members of NWA. They got away from that, and they got into the, the culture of celebrity. Um, but I was just disappointed to see all that get left behind and to get this bog standard. You know, yeah. we have differences, and, oh, the manager's evil and takes advantage of us and, and splits us apart. And then one of us dies of AIDS, and then we yeah. all get back together, and we love and, each other. And the producers are Boy Scouts in the movie. They have no flaws at all. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, it's the, it's the winner's right history thing. Uh, uh, but you guys are right. It could have been a better movie because it's inherently interesting. Well, so it is I really weird. did like that that first hour or maybe forty five minutes of it. I mean, yeah. I really, I really did find it pretty exciting. Uh, it's a good opening, of, by the way. I love the first scene. Yeah, yeah I, I love that first scene. I mean, it definitely called to mind the thing that I did not like about um, True Detective that that scene that everybody else thinks is awesome. And it, I have to admit, it is a pretty awesome scene. Um, and that was that is historically historically accurate. It was there was a time period where where the LAPD was just their policy was just to go and knock down doors like that. Right. I thought the more interesting part of that scene, by the way, was how Eric uh, dealt with the other guys in the room. Right. Yeah. And I thought it was a callback when he's dealing with Suge Knight and and his thugs when uh, they're coming to him to say. Right. I thought we were going to have a callback and Eric was going to bluff his way out of that or it was going to recall what we learned about him in that first scene. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the director was aware of that. Like I don't think he was aware that he was evoking that first scene. Yeah, well, that's a shame. The resolution d- didn't 
it all mirror what happened uh, in the first scene. Where he's doing that sort of false hostage thing. Yeah, and just, wait, I thought maybe he was he that was intentional because I made that connection and just so maybe he the director should get credit for it. Well, I actually how, did, how did it, didn't until Tom just said it. Yeah, because I don't think anything in the scene with Suge Knight, he just basically gets the crap beat out of him. He doesn't try to stand up to him. I mean, he's basically like, oh, so you're going to be... But but here's the point. I mean, yeah, that's probably, you know, I guess how it happened or how they wanted to portray it happening. Uh, You know, Eric wasn't a part... He's dead, so he wasn't a part of the people telling the story. His widow was. Okay. but So nobody was in the room. Nobody knows. But if you're going to dramatize, dramatize, fictionalize, if you're going to show a scene, uh, you know, we've created this, this... cool introduction of him where he bluffs his way by lying about taking the guy's mother hostage out of this situation. Right. And actually, we don't even know if he's going to get out of that situation. Right. Uh, and then with the Shogun Knight scene, you don't see him try to do that. Like, you don't try see to bluff. that kind of, you don't see the wheels spinning. You don't realize, oh, this is a really bright guy, and he's, he's brave under pressure. Um, he's just kind of resigned to getting his ass kicked in that scene. Well, we do know he's going to get out of that first situation, because as soon as he walks in the door, F. Gary Gray throws up the, who he is, and and I think he la- he labels each one of them one at a time. Right, with writing on the wall, which I thought was actually kind of a nice touch. Well, it was a nice touch because it helped me like it helped cement them in my brain, like who's who. Right. Um. So w- w- you absolutely know he's going to get out of the scene, but you don't know how or why. Um. And I certainly didn't know where the scene was going to go. Right. But, but we, what we don't know is whether or not the bluff worked. Like we don't know if right. the other guys are going to take the bait. Yeah. Right. 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 And, again, and, and by the way, that doesn't matter. So the fact that he tried it is what we need to know about that scene. Exactly. Yeah, so right. It absolutely doesn't matter. But maybe it was a different kind of party with Suge in the second scene. And so the fact that he's not going to even try a bluff is like a, either a sense that he recognizes that or he has been corrupted by the system. There are plenty of interpretations that you could use to tie it to why it didn't reflect <laughs> that first scene. But right. I just felt like, let's see that this is the same easy E. This is the same Eric right. that came out of out of Compton. He, he's he's not used his Compton smarts in Bel Air, wherever they were. Instead, right. He's not, I think if Gary Gray takes the it takes the air out of that scene. Yeah. I mean, it, there's no tension in the scene for me. I mean, it's a it's a scene that's famous. I mean, Suge Knight. I mean, the, there's there's that famous there's any the famous like forcing to get to make the contract, uh, sign the contract with a gun to your head or hanging somebody off of a building or whatever. Uh, but then, if Gary Gray pulls back through the studio glass, and we see them punching, doing obvious fake punches under a table, it's an R movie. What, what the fuck are you doing? Come on. Well, but he, the thing that's similar to the as a callback is like he's he's also not scared in that scene. He's just like oh, I don't. He's I, not gonna, he doesn't back down. Well, he doesn't and back then, down, but that doesn't mean he's not scared. I think he can. I think I think he does a fine enough job of portraying he's scared. What's weird is that Suge Knight is this Godfather figure who is just a steamroller, and is just it seems uh, invincible. Um, and I think that the guy doing uh, Suge Knight uh, is basically doing a Marlon Brando impression from yeah, yeah. which I which I think is a cute, which I think is. Is clever, but no more than cute. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it winds up not really mattering. Cause it amounts to nothing, dude. I think, as yeah. as does the introduction of Tupac, as does the introduction of Snoop Dogg. Uh, it's just like this this parade of artists that come through and, and people doing impressions of them. And I, I, as much as I wanted, I mean, each one of them has such a rich 
rich story to tell that I would rather, I would actually rather see documentaries about each one of these guys than watch this parade of, of guys doing impressions of them. I mean, I just, after a certain point, and it, actually, I think the breaking point for me, one of the breaking points was when she comes in and asks, um, ask Ice Cube about Friday. Uh, it's like, oh, really? You're going to just pepper that in here out of nowhere? Um, it's like, oh, come on. And then we just get this parade of other artists. And and with no interesting details either. It's like, oh, he's no. writing it. That's it. Guy, want to stop agreeing with us. Tell us something else that you liked about yeah. it. Why, why did you want this to go on longer? Uh, okay, well, I want to, one last thing about the E scene, because I still defend it. Which, is after that scene, he goes to Jamadi's house, and then Jamadi sticks the gun in his face, and he's and E's whole attitude in that scene is just irritation, like he's not scared of the gun, and he's just annoyed that he has to go kill um, Shug. Like he's not, he was never going to bluff his way out of it. Like he was going to compton it by just escalating it with hostilities. So it's not like. Never mind. Well, I, no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I did like that, that line, and I think that, again, this is one of those things that we didn't really find out more about Eric, is, that, is, is his line about, why do, I, why do I have to be the good guy? Right. So, and did Jamadi talk him out of it? Like, did Jamadi do, do him a good turn that night? But, but it seemed like more of a question for himself. Why do I, why do I have to be the good guy? And, and it's such an interesting window into his character, because if we're, if we're supposed to be led to believe that he screwed them over, right. uh, then it's an, interesting, it's an interesting thing for a character to say. Um, and I think and the, fact that he's that. Short, the fact that he's short matters. Like, that's why a lot of this is happening. Like I, I actually never even noticed. Yeah, I don't even know what you're talking about. Every time you've said something about him being short, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, now that I think back, I guess maybe he was shorter than the other actors, but I don't know if that was like a real part of his character or something. No, the bouncers are always like scowling at him. He's always getting the shit for it. And um, yeah, I don't know. Short? That's I don't remember that. Did you guys what? catch in that scene at Paul Giamatti's house after he gets beat up and he goes to talk to him? Uh, did you catch the wraparound edit? No. What? <laughs> what? Oh my God, I couldn't believe that. Actually, someone told me about it beforehand, and I'd completely forgotten until it happened. Um, Paul Giamatti, I don't even remember the line. Paul Giamatti says a line to him, and then Eric has the response. And then we cut to a reverse angle, and Paul Giamatti says that line again, and Eric has the response. And the scene what? goes on from there. Uh, they totally, they were obviously oh, yeah, 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 yeah. with a couple of cameras. And for whatever reason, two lines got repeated. I, I, I don't know what they were thinking, because when Paul Giamatti says the line, sometimes an actor, it's cool if they repeat a line with a different reflect, inflection or something. Uh, it was just the same line from a different angle, edited in. What? Yeah, I couldn't Yeah, he's it. right, I remember. But I thought at the time, I go, oh, he's just saying it again. But then Eric has the same response. Yeah, I know. But they're both saying it again. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, okay. Now maybe I remember what you're saying. I yeah, thought it was just yeah. a call and response kind of a thing. Well, I guess but maybe, maybe that, it was the doing... what it was supposed to be, but it seemed to me like a wraparound edit where they either I, it, it wouldn't was, have been it was almost the same line. Yeah, but it was still shot like that's the next thing he says. Like it, right. it looks oh. okay, like oh yeah, he's just saying it again. Yeah, and like it was the exact same words. Yeah. yeah, I totally remember what you're saying. Okay. All right, Kelly, one. What's something else that made you want this movie to go longer? Okay, I think I might have a soft spot for movies like Whiplash, which I invoke in, in this instance, and and like where 
basically you're young and you're creative, but you're constantly being crushed everywhere. Like, don't do that. You're not gonna. That's not gonna happen. And but you still just do it anyway. And huh? then, and then the people rise up with you and sure. that leads to riots. I love that shit. That's always exciting to me. I always love those kind of like. And I think that that was part of how it was. Maybe they should have just like made the first half of their lives the whole movie, and kept out of the out of the music business stuff. Because that I mean, I can understand why Dingus was losing interest because it really stops. It does start being about, oh, we're rich and successful, and one of us doesn't like the contract, and we're going to resent each other because of money. At one point, is it Paul Giamatti who says something about it's it's not about money. Um, it is about money. Like that's, that's it's totally about money. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they still don't get lawyers. Like even after they get screwed over repeatedly, they're like, "All right, no lawyer." Like at that point, they're just dumb. And, and it becomes the crux. It was sort of like as the producers, they wanted their own perspective in here. Right. Why they got financially screwed over? And as an audience member, I don't care about that so much. I no, want to go I back know. into more like yeah, your, your, your cultural roots and uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and how, also the music. Good lord, I just had such yeah. a. It, there was such joy in some of those early performances. Yeah, right. And yeah. and that moment where where he said I was I was tripping when they knew the words. That's the kind of energy I loved about this movie, and and that I loved about the music. I mean, I'm sitting in a full theater, and I and you just can't help but have your head move. You know when when this music is playing. Dennis, did you stand up? Uh, I stood up. Uh, I said noise, and then I ran out of the theater after dropping my mic. Um, but w- w- what's awesome about that is that is that that mo- that scene with during when when uh, when Easy and his crew and Jerry are listening to the diss song that Ice Cube has put out, and the members of the crew that they can't help but their heads bobbing because it's just. It's right, just even great though they're beat. supposed to be hating it and cringing at the lyrics right. and stuff, right, and, right? And they just can't help it. They're just um, and and Ren says that that line like, "I don't think so." When when Easy says, "Yeah, we can just go into the studio and destroy his career." I, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I love that because when I was sitting there, um, just you can't help but your mo- your body moving during that, and I love that music. And I don't need wall to wall music, but I I wanted more of that energy. I mean, the energy of that was beautiful. Uh, and then as the movie goes on, I just... I think I... Here's the... Okay. I think when I was watching the movie, I just assumed from the repetitiveness of the of the, like the final half hour that like, oh, it's this is act two, and then act three is going to be where they go full on Compton on all these business associates, and that's right. going to be like the third act. They're going to take out Suge, and it's going to be all Breaking Bad, and it's going to be Godfather for real, because there's like gunplay or in the movie. So there's a car chase even for Pete. Car chase! Right! Yeah. So I go, it's going to be an action movie, and it's just going to... They're going to go, fuck it, let's just leave the rails and do it do a jump street version of our lives basically well jesus like, that's a great idea kelly i mean they they should have gone all in glorious bastards on this thing yeah it always felt like it was on the verge of doing that anyway but like as you guys are talking about it, like yeah they're always the victims they're always the heroes like they don't make fun of themselves ever once well it's like, also yeah that's true actually it's also why i don't uh i think the movie has been criticized uh for not showing uh, some of Dr. Dre's uh, – so, so he's been convicted of assaulting a woman, right. uh, and his, his his past girlfriends have come out and said, yeah, he used to beat me. Um, so there's apparently a skeleton in his closet about beating women, abusing women, uh, and there's been a criticism that this movie doesn't show that. When no, he's the family I, man. 
when I, I don't think that this isn't that kind of movie. This is them telling their story. Right. They're financing this movie. He's not going to have that in a movie about him. This right. is not a movie about their flaws, about their weaknesses. Uh, th- this is these guys telling their own biography, and it's going to be entirely whitewashed. Uh, right. You know, that car chase, by the way, like I, I was real curious about some of these events. Uh, he was arrested for drunk driving, and he got in a car chase. The movie makes it where he he's upset, he's distraught. Yeah. Because his friend, he's you know he's, he's losing his friendship, and he gets in the car, and then the police harass him, and so he takes off. Like it was a drunk driving incident. Oh, I did not know that. Funny, that is yeah. Funny. He had twice the legal limit. Uh, he, he went up to ninety miles an hour through uh, through Hollywood in, in his Ferrari, his eighty seven Ferrari, uh, and he he got, he you know got arrested for drunk driving. Um, you know, and so it's kind of like they're like, you know, you can see Dr. Dre saying, yeah, let's put that in the movie. But here's my angle on it. You know, here's how I want it to be portrayed. They should have just made the – just gone all the way and like the chick who's uh, suing him for – or no, the the chicky bee. Like in the movie, like he rescues her or something and they just like go – they just make fun of whitewashed biopics. Yeah, it's it's humorless though. They don't want to do it. Right. I know, but they could have. They could have gotten away with it like, good, it's a biopic. What are you talking about? The brave version of this movie, and I love what Tom just said, would have been – Having the real dude sit there, like in an, in a, like a, a, you know, I'm sitting in a chair giving an interview. This is how I remember it in a little clip. And then this is how it really happened. You know, yeah. a director showing, like, well, how I remember it is that I was right. super upset and I got my Lamborghini and then the cops started hassling me. And then you show what actually happened. Sort of a he said, she said kind of a thing. Um, but like by somebody like Spike Jones. Uh, where it's it's kind of surreal but but full of power, um, but this this way it was just everything you expected, and it just you know was you know a pandering sort of feeling that I got from Ray, which is just this. Ugh, are we really gonna have to go through this? We all know. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know the story of NWA, but reading it doesn't take but five minutes, and figuring out some of these this and, and as Thomas said, this ponderous oh, our manager did this and now we all did drugs and some of us got drunk and then one of us got AIDS, one of us died. It's ugh, it's melodramatic. It's and you know but, they they make fun of um Boys in the Hood a li- in a little bit, you know, when that when that in that moment it's not making fun, it's making fun of E Z E by saying, Did you say it was an after school special? Well you know I like after school specials. Right. But I like that right. Tom called this a movie of the week. Because if Boys in the Hood is an after hood after school special and watching it again last night, it is, sadly. Um, this is definitely a movie of the week. I think yeah, that's all true. Uh, it was really I liked it. Go ahead. Well just um I have a question for you guys that I should probably be answering, but it's like, the okay, like the scene where he gets the bat out and like destroys all of the records, and Brian's like, "I'll get you your money, I'll get you your money, easy." What? I didn't think this was going to happen. Right? It's like, <laughs> what's the point of view of that scene? Like, is it that it's him I, showing up? Is what you got to do? It's him showing up his weaselly manager. It's him getting the upper hand on the business. It's him. Right. Not allowing himself to be screwed over by the man, you know, but being taken advantage of. He's better than that. Yeah. Because the music's all sinister and like, oh, this is where maybe we crossed the line, yo. These are the right. this is the wages of sin act. But it's like there's no negative fallout from it at all. And right. so it's like the dumbness of that I think is funny and I like it. Like I like that that's in the movie and that's what this 
this movie is interspersed with is scenes of people just taking bats to shit. <laughs> so I think that's something I liked about it. But that's also like, you know, when I analyze it as a, like, I like it as a movie, but as a, as a biopic, it's the, it's maybe one of the dumbest ones ever made. Wow. But it's one of the best movies ever made for about an hour. Oh. Uh, here's another thing that bothered me. Uh, I was wondering, were they arrested for playing fuck the police in Detroit? That has to be true, right? Isn't yeah, that the impression was... you guys get from the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, I, I feel strong. You know, it's your First Amendment right to, to say fuck the police. I can do that. And I could even uh, – the First Amendment would protect me if I wanted to write a song about murdering cops. Uh, and we've been through all of this. You know, this stuff has been decided. And so so – Back in the in the eighties, I, I, I was this would have been ninety one. I think whenever this was, I was wondering, did the police really arrest them for playing the song in Detroit? Uh, and if so, wasn't that legally challenged? And how did it turn out? Uh, no, they weren't arrested. Good point. They they were detained. Oh. And the cops let them go. Uh, oh. And furthermore, the police didn't meet them at the venue. The police asked to meet with them and and sat down with them in their hotel room and said. We don't want you – we're uncomfortable with this song. The Policeman's Union doesn't want you playing this. Uh, we don't approve of this in Detroit. Please don't play it. And it wasn't like they were blockading them or anything. But they did go in to, to arrest them, by the way, or detain them. I mean the, the cops were going to be dicks about it. Uh, but here's what really bothered me. So a riot followed, and you know th- that part actually happened. But nobody knows what triggered it. And the movie shows us a white guy with a gun. That there, there is no that the venue owner has said someone set off firecrackers, and that's what what people panicked about, and that's when they started running. But the movie is going to make up that it's a white guy with a gun. I thought it was one of the cops with the gun. Why did he fire his gun? Was it a cop or was it a guy trying to sabotage? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it didn't seem. I didn't. Did you do you see his badge? Uh, well, no, but I just assumed it, because who else would have this, guns in there? That whole thing is weird and weirdly edited, because you see guys marching forward with badges in the air, and some of them look like they're playing clothes. Or, right. or special forces, or something. Right. Like what? Um, I, had a, I had a really hard time understanding the editing of that scene. And then maybe that was on purpose, but... Yeah, yeah, and you're right. And what was going on? And I was going to say one of the things I liked about the movie in general is I could always tell what was going on. But now that you mention it, that crowd scene, I was having like, how many are there? Like, how big is the space? Are they getting resistance from the crowd? Yeah, and the, the, the police didn't wade into the crowd. The police were were waiting for them, and then when the riot happened, they just ran off. And the police later arrested them in the hotel, by the way. Oh, you know, they they, they got back to the hotel just fine, and the police waited in the lobby. And when they came down, they arrested them and then detained them and then let them go. No charges were pressed. So the movie makes them even awesomer because it implies the cops knew they would run this way, so they had a van backed up. <laughs> right. So the cops are actually totally on their shit, right. way more than they were in the movie. Really, were... What the cops were doing in what you're saying, Tom, is basically just pro forma going, yeah, we, we detained them. It, well, not at the why... event, but we, we did do it. And, and I wanted to know that. I, I was like, well, wait, is the movie glossing over some court challenge to them being arrested for playing a song? Because that wouldn't stand up. You know, what happened with this? And that's one of the first things I looked up when I when I got home, because I know they were a big part of uh, of the controversy with Tipper Gore's that parental commission. Right. Where they wanted st- stickers on labels. And I think straight out of Compton, 
was specifically one of the albums singled out, one of the first ones to actually have a label on it. Uh, so I wanted to know more about this. And yeah, the Detroit thing, it, I just think there well, was weird creative liberties taken there. And but okay, the impression that they're arrested for performing a song, and that never happened. But the reason they performed it was because they got the thing from the FBI, which either happened or it didn't. But that, I'm by the way, did happen, happened. and the FBI was censured by Congress for that. Yeah. Oh wow! But and then, but at the, in the movie they go, oh well, this is free publicity. So they were going to sing that song even if the cops came to the hotel room, right? Like was the, like they just admit that, like that's the closest they get in the movie too. And I'm glad they did. I mean, I think that's an important thing. I mean, that's one yeah, of the yeah. things I, I I care very much about. Uh, the, oddly enough, I, I side with a lot of stuff that Tipper Gore was trying to do back then, um, but I also care very much about your First Amendment right to make a song about killing the police. Um, and that's part of what I love about NWA is they brought that issue to the forefront. Yeah, yeah because nobody was talking about it. I mean, that was really important to them. Um, and there's this weird thing that happened during that time or during the time of the riots in, in particular. And, and I do like a couple of the, the ways that the that the uh, riots were shot. Um, but there was this weird thing that happened. And I, I was much more... Uh, because of the way uh, the household in which I was raised, to hear the kind of news reports, the white, very white news reports right, right. that you saw clipped in this movie about, um, well, there's a lot of things that are said, but is this too much, you know, kind of thing. This is gangster rap and this is violent. Uh, those kinds of things I would have been more aware of at the time than any in any way aware of rap. Um, so that whole that whole sequence of them getting arrested and them the idea of whether or not how far free speech goes and how far or or where you stop it and where inciting violence is, goes i understand where the movie was trying to go with that but i just don't think it went far enough yeah uh how did you guys feel about the final uh line where he pones suge knight by telling him what his new company is going to be called doesn't it imply that Suge Knight, what they did was awesome together? Like, okay, this is the aftermath of something really cool. Like, doesn't it sort of aggrandize his enemy? It, it feels pathetic. It feels like an advertising plug. Like, hey, we're going to enter the plug for this company that I founded. I, I was like, really? That's the note you're going to go out on? <laughs> well, I looked it up and go, oh, that must mean something really significant. And so it's like he signed Eminem. Like, they're just a record label. Right. Like, they've had some hits and misses, like everybody. Yeah, and I think that's what Aftermath is most known for, is Dr. Dre was like, Eminem was a protege to him, and he sort of discovered him, and, uh, you know, that's usually significant to, like, I'm I'm not into rap, but I love Eminem. Um, But is that a plug for a sequel with a young Eminem, and then they're going to like... Well, let's hope not. I'd rather, I'd much rather see a Public Enemy movie, because I'm really into Public Enemy. Yeah. Um, that's I would say. Chuck D's probably my favorite rapper, um, and so one of the things I was going to try to say about that whole sequence about uh, the riots was one of the things that we were watching when I was with my family, and we're talking, or when I was alone, or whatever, watching that coverage of the rap of the um, the riots uh, was some some female reporter out on the street in some. Oh, we're going to throw to you. She's like, these young kids are bringing the noise. This is what they are doing. They are bringing the noise. And she must have said that five times. Yep. But what these kids are doing, 
what's happening right now is these people are bringing the noise. And, and, I, and even then, I was just like, what in the world are you talking about? Later on, I would be introduced to Public Enemy, and I was like, oh, that's where she got it, all right. Wait, so she knew the Public Enemy lyrics? Yeah, well, somebody just lifted it and handed it to her or whatever. Um, she went, ow! They admit it! Yeah. But, uh, you know, well, I did kind of like that moment where the, the black, I mean, the the red and blue handkerchiefs or bandanas were tied together as they walked forward. Uh, it did make me want to go ahead and watch um, uh, Boys in the Hood. And boy, does that movie not hold up. I love that movie. It came out. Mm, oh, my God. Is that your under dingus? Um, um, geez, it's... You're thinking about it, I see. Interesting. Uh, no, I picked something else for my under because I went... I went thematic instead of with this, but I was surprised at how much I do not, I do not appreciate Boys in the Hood anymore. First of all, the music is all soap opera music, and that after school special thing is totally true. And there's this whole thing that I didn't get at the time, where John Singleton is doing this whole uh, "I'm going to make fun of Stand by Me" thing, and he does it throughout maybe the first. 45 minutes of the movie where he, he makes fun of Stand By Me. You guys want to go see a body? Yeah, why not? Uh, I mean, there's this whole Stand By Me vibe, and I know this because <laughs> I've watched Stand By Me a couple of times recently, and I didn't catch that. The first time I saw Boys in the Hood, I really was crazy about it, um, and I didn't understand all the Stand By Me stuff, which is weird for me, uh, but yeah, Boys, Boys in the Hood, oh my god. It does not stand up, and Easy E's right. It's an after-school special. It's also kind of a landmark movie. That was where John Singleton really proved that there's a such thing as black cinema. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, it's, so, it's landmark. And Ice Cube yeah. is, I mean, he makes he makes a name for himself. It's where Cuba Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr. Sorry, um, you know, lands La- La- right. Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, is in there and he's really good in it. Everybody's good in it. It's just really, so, it's really a, a, a soap opera. And it's kind of weird to think that I thought it was so great at the time and to watch it again, it, it just doesn't hold up for me. What, what year was that, Dingus? Do you know? Oh, good lord. I can't remember off the top of my head. Right. I remember seeing it and being, uh, Vaguely disappointed and not sure if I was missing something. And then I saw Menace to Society, which is, uh, it was near miss for my over. But like that movie was like, okay, this is the one I think they, that people think Boys in the Hood is. Like that oh. one kind of. Oh, yeah. Did you ever see that one? Oh, Menace yeah. Um, oh, God. Who's the guy in Menace to Society? So good. Oh, there's, uh, there's a lot of cool people in it. <laughs> no, but there's one guy in particular who is just a revelation, and I don't know where that guy went. Oh, man, I can't remember that actor's name. Darn it. <sighs> Damn it. Sounds well, really into the Hughes brothers. It'll come to me It'll come to me after we're done with the podcast. But there's well, one guy just... in Menace Society who's so awesome. He's just – he's like this firecracker. I mean, he's just alive, and I can't think of his name, and I, I'm really disappointed in myself. Oh, well, it'll come to me later, I guess. Menace Society. Yes. Tell me if Menace Society wasn't your over, what was? Uh, cool as Ice with Vanilla Ice. I think <laughs> it's actually one of my favorite movies. That's uh, over? Yeah, I love that movie. Right, have you seen it? it? Have either of you seen Cool as no, Ice? No, I have not seen it. Yeah. No. 
There's a there. Okay, so he has to. He's there to make an album, I think. But he also has to win over the rich girl. She's like an honor student, and she doesn't like. She she doesn't know she likes bad boys yet. Um. So he has to win her over with his rap, and then he like. There's a scene where he goes to a club and like a loser raps, and then Ice gets up and just fucking shows him how it's done, and then he takes the girl on a date um, to a house under construction. That's like their date, like, montage. And then there's, like, these gangsters who are trying to kill her dad, so he has to take out the gangsters with his motorcycle. It's really good. So then what would be your under? Something that's not quite as good as... Wait, uh, isn't Vanilla Ice the guy that Suge Knight supposedly held by his ankles over the... over some hotel in... Vegas. Yeah, but they, yeah, but they don't cover that in Cool as Ice. Okay, obviously. All right. So you picked it's Cool kind of as Ice over the best movie ever made. Go ahead with your under. And under is The Doors. Oliver Stone. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's worse than this movie. My under is actually Friday, which I remember seeing. Um, ah, you don't like Friday? No, I remember seeing it. Uh, it was hard to actually write a review of it, and like seeing it the day it opened, and then having to turn in the review that night. Uh, no, I don't like Friday. I didn't think it was very funny. It was really disappointing. It's like, oh, that's where Ice Cube. That's the direction Ice Cube is going. Uh, my over. I, I was going to try to bracket this, but decided that's not interesting. I'm not going to bring up a, a a movie that's just slightly better than this movie. I don't care for. So what I have done. You know, I don't even. You know, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, a movie about what it's like to be uh, young, frustrated, and a minority who is unjustly persecuted by authority, a better movie, and I'm just going to go straight to the top here, uh, Fruitvale Station. Um, so my over is Fruitvale Station by miles and miles, uh, and my under is Friday. I love that you put it that way, because my over is much in the same vein. What is it? Uh, my over is 8 Mile. Yep. Um as far as like, oh, go, yeah, because I went with bio, I went with sort of biographical uh, movies that I thought were, uh, well, the, the, my under and this one are disappointing. Eight Mile is a movie I love, and I and I'm glad that you sort of freed me up from the bracketing thing because I felt kind of embarrassed about that. Um, but I love, uh, I'm fine with the liberties Eight Mile takes, and I love the way it tells its story and. Um, I know it has this sort of karate kid kind of an ending, but I don't care because I think the movie making is great. When you say liberties it takes, so eight miles is not supposed to be factual, is it? No, but it is slightly biographical. I mean, right, that, right. That, yeah. Right, but right. with liberties, I mean, you know, and I've said this before when when Hollywood makes a movie they say is based on a, you know, I'm doing air quotes now, a true story. Um, it's fine with me if if they fictionalize things or they they conglomerate characters or whatever. That's fine with me. Uh, it's just if if I if I can see the seams, like uh, that was one of my complaints about Argo. If I can see every time you're doing it, um, then I'm gonna you know, you're gonna I'm gonna dock you some points. But Eight Mile, it just didn't matter to me because uh, Eminem was so good in it. And uh, Wait, Eight Mile says it's based on a true story, though. Well, it's, it's listed as basically sort of a biographical movie, and and that song, is the um, what I, I can't remember the name of the song. Uh, he's he's talking about his story. I mean, it's kind of his story of growing up in that situation. 
Right, but I think it does what Kelly Wand was kind of, except it goes in the other direction. Kelly Wand was saying, hey, just go over the top with the straight out of Compton stuff and get a little crazy. Uh, yeah. I think Eminem wanted to make a more grounded, fictionalized story. And, you know, Curtis Hansen directed it wonderfully. I don't know who wrote it. Um, but it's it's sort of like, hey, let's tell a story about the, the setting that I came from. And rather than going over the top, it was just really grounded um yeah, it's, but I, I don't. Yeah, it's clearly an example of what happens when you free yourself up from trying to make a biography. Right. Just tell a story about a setting and, and, a, and a guy. And it, by the way, it doesn't show us what happens to Rabbit. Like he wins the rap battle, and we don't find out that he goes to Hollywood and becomes rich and becomes upset about his contract. <laughs> right. Right. So it knows when to end. Yeah. Exactly right. And one of the things I liked about what you were saying is, and I thought you were going to say this, is because it's a minority, but it's kind of a reverse minority in that situation. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's a white dude in a, in a black man's world, um, which, I, you know, I'm not asking you guys to feel bad about that, but it was it's a cool way to to sort of go after what you were just saying about a minority. Yeah. And, and, so I, my, and I, I loved, too, by the way, how it uh, – sort of walked us through it didn't walk us through i mean it didn't show him writing stuff but i just felt much more in tune with like how this is a creative process for him it seemed like such a big part of the character we were meeting um you know that he was having to puzzle through these things and he was upset about the rap battle and he was nervous before going up i mean that's part of the creative process being right. nervous and being insecure about what you've got uh and i love seeing it yeah that's part of this guy who's really good at rap um well, I think oh, Stanley well, Compton has some of that, though. I mean, I think in that that scene where Easy E is learning how to rap. Well, that's and... that's what I mentioned. I said, well, you know, I wish there'd be oh, more of the right. creative process because the only time I saw it was that cool scene, and I liked that scene where he makes them leave the room and then he hits it. Like I liked that, and I can't right. think of another instance of something like that, though. Well, there's that moment where they're on the school bus, and Ice and, and Ice Cube is writing, and and that. Goofy guy asks him what he's doing, and he says, "What are you, a new poet?" And he's like, "Well, I'm, I'm the flyest one you know," and I guess something like that. But it's it's Ice Cube writing and writing and writing, and I liked that aspect of it. But I don't think you see him really working on that. I think you see Drag doing that a little bit early on, uh, trying to to suss out that feeling. But the only person I think you see really being insecure is uh, Easy E when he's in the studio, and then. What's surprising is Ice Cube, for me, not jumping in and saying, well, I can do this, but Ice Cube was much younger than them. He was like 17 at that time. So, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's amongst a bunch of like 20-year-olds, and he's 17 years old in that studio, so obviously he's not going to jump in. He's just the writer. So I did get some of that sense, but not the way, as you said, not the way you get it from 8 Mile. I think it's what is your under then? All right, so my under this is this has nothing to do with music whatsoever. This is a movie called The Fighter, which um, I really did not care for at all. Uh, but it's a it's a biopic that I would closely bracket underneath uh, Straight Outta Compton because I just feel like it gets too melodramatic and it gets too uh, silly with uh, not silly but tedious with the the brother with the drug and prison problems and just the way it's acted. Um, but I would put it slightly underneath straight out of Compton. Thing is Christian Bale lost a lot of weight for that role. Give him some Yeah, credit. he really did. And he, and uh, who's the guy who played uh, Easy E? forget his name off the top of my head. You guys remember? Easy. He played Easy E in the movie? Yeah. In Straight Outta Compton? Yeah. Uh, Kelly Wand, can you field this question? I think it was Corey. Maybe it was Corey Hawkins. Okay. Um, uh, 
he it was one of the Corys. They, they didn't do anything like that. <laughs> they just like, and it's really hard to do that makeup wise um, with dark skin. I, I'm not trying to be difficult here, but it's harder to do that than <laughs> to make a white person look sallow. Um, it's it was just what are you they, talking about, Dingus? And maybe it was just bad makeup, but. Uh, but he never really looked sick. He just would go <coughs> every now and then, and people would go, "Hey, what's wrong?" There's um, something that I wondered about. So I, they're wearing the baseball caps, and, and because I, this is the sort of thing I think about uh, when I'm not into a movie. I'm sitting there watching the movie, and I'm not into it. And they're wearing the baseball caps, and I'm thinking, man, it must, it must have been really hard to light their eyes if they're going to have to constantly wear those stupid baseball caps. <laughs> I was feeling bad for like the gaffer as I had to set up the lighting. That's just such a one percent thing to say. One, two, three, me, you me, one eighty degrees, and I'm caught in between. Counting one, two, three, feet apart, not free, getting down with three feet. Connect me to Mitt Romney. Go ahead. Well, that's uh, not I had something more important to say. Oh, you did. did I, what, what should we uh, should we go back, Kelly Wan? Yeah. What did you have to say? A pussy's like a bowl of hot stew. Davis, what is this week's three by three? All right, this week's 3 by 3 is your favorite lens flares in movies. And what um, what inspired this was uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about a topic. Um, or maybe we were just talking about a movie, and Tom mentioned something. Oh, we were talking about some sort of camera thing that happened, and I likened it to a lens flare. Uh, and And the thing that Tom was talking about was really more of a mistake. And, uh, and lens flare has always bothered me. And so I said, oh, well, you know, that's why lens flare bothers me so much. And Tom sort of corrected me and said, well, that's usually a stylistic choice. Um, that they do that on purpose. And, um, I kind of went along with it, but didn't necessarily agree. And over the next couple of weeks, I kind of started thinking, well, maybe I should start listening to what Tom was talking about. Because obviously, there's reasons they leave things in movies. There's reasons they choose the takes that they choose in movies. And so I challenged us all to come up with lens, our favorite lens flares, uh, to kind of help educate me as to what directors are doing and why they're doing it. All right. So Kelly Wan, you're introducing next week's topic. So why don't you start us off with giving us your third favorite lens flare? <laughs> Can't wait I don't to see you where this goes. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot about cinematography, Tom. All right, I took a class uh, in something. By the way, uh, am I right about uh, like when I talk about lighting someone's eyes when they're wearing a brim on a hat? Is it the gaffer who has to do that? Did I did I get that right? Do you guys know? Yeah, it's the gaffer. Okay, I was the grits the sound guy. Okay, it could be Sam. Could be Sam. Kaiwan, did you get that? No. What's that? Sam, Sam Gamgee. Never mind. Oh, oh, the old gaffer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not nerds enough to get that, Dingus. Kelly and Wanda and I are a little too cool. Sam the gaffer. I'm going to make a t-shirt for you, Tom, that says, we're not nerds enough. Yeah. That's, 
It's kind of my mind. Sam's not the gaffer, all right? He's a different hobbit. Uh, it's his grandpa or some shit, right? Let me revise what I said. I'm not a nerd enough. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> All right, Kelly Wan, give us your third favorite instance of lens flare in a movie. That's my favorite Lincoln quote. I am not nerd enough. You know what, though? Sam kind of was Frodo's gaffer, now that I think about it. Dingus is on to something. No, he was his grip. Ew. Too soon. Uh, my number three lens flare is from the motion picture Europa Report at the very end. Because it proves the aliens have discovered J.J. Abrams. <laughs> J.K. No, uh, it proves they have optics, which is a relief, alien-wise. So um, it's like that. Make, that's what makes it an optimistic ending. Is because like the lens flare proves it's like the first. It's most historically significant lens flare because it's alien contact. Kind of a spoiler, I guess. Uh, Dingus, this is your topic. Should we allow? Should we ask Kelly Wan to elaborate or just move on? We should move on because I think you'll have something trenchant to say. Uh, my number three, so Dingus, I don't, I don't, uh, I mean, no disrespect intended, but I don't like this topic because I don't, <laughs> I don't care about lens flare. I don't have a favorite. Oh, it drives um, me crazy. <laughs> well, it used to be a mistake. It's <laughs> a funny thing. Like it used to be something you would avoid, but now, you know, I do think it's a lot of times intentional or you just can't. Yeah, Abrams does 50 a movie. Well, the thing that drives me crazy about it is that, is that it, it, it says you are looking at a camera shot right now. Or you are. Well, I know you are, but you're supposed to be going into the movie yeah. and lost in it and suspending right. disbelief and believe that you are seeing it through some sort of a window or watching something that's actually happening. And whenever a lens flare happens, the director is saying, hey, Dingus, hey if you, everybody, you're yeah. watching something that's being shot through a camera. I'm letting you know that right now. If you don't want lens flare, go see a play. Ooh, sick burn, or or even a mime performance on the street. Right. No, don't go see one of those. I don't recommend that. All right. Uh, so all my lens flares are are just because I think you know uh, the the sort of signature J.J. Uh, Abrams, not mistake, but he's kind of recanted it uh, was to put in lens flare. So I just went back and looked for lens flare from J.J. Abrams movies. So my my first, my number three <laughs> is before he was doing it intentionally. I think. Um, in Mission Impossible 3, uh, there are the nighttime scenes in Shanghai where Tom Cruise is going to jump over to a skyscraper or whatever. Uh, but when you shoot at night with a bunch of city lights, you can get some cool lens flare. I mean, it's not as prominent as, like, if you have the sun at a certain angle. Um, so here's my theory. I think in that Shanghai scene, J.J. Abrams, you know, some of that lens flare popped up, and he kind of thought, hey, this is cool. So I am picking as my number three – the birth of J.J. Abrams' attachment to lens flare, which I'll then chart my number two and my number one, from Mission Impossible 3. So when you say – because you defend it as a stylistic choice. I think of it as something that takes me out of the movie. So what is the – the choice he's making is it looks cool? Uh, you know, well, yeah. I mean he, uh, he, he actually actively puts lens flare into the movies that I'll mention. Yeah, um, I – he, just uh, to, just be, and so huh? the justification you're making is because it looks cool. I'm not making it. I mean, I mean not uh, you. I mean, I'm saying you're you're saying the director's stylistic choice is because it looks cool. Well, pretty much. He's basically been made fun of, and in later interviews, he said, "Yeah, I kind of overdid it." But yeah, that's why. That's why he. That's what J.J. Abrams thinks is because it. Well, not because it looks cool. He thinks it gives the the number one pick. I'll mention. He think it. He thinks it gave that movie. Uh, a unique visual flair, which I agree with. 
I wish he wouldn't. That's be the yet. same thing. If he wants to, if he wants to go overboard with a special effect, you know, with a visual flair, I'm okay with that. Do it. And I kind of thought it looks cool. Um, so I'm with J.J. Abrams. Uh, <laughs> so is he doing that just because he apes everything Spielberg does? I don't. I don't know that Spielberg ever intentionally introduced lens flare. Like I watched uh, uh, Close Encounters, which is a lot yeah, of cool was, light stuff. I and, was going to ask about that. And no, it's minimized. Like he had plenty of opportunity in that. I mean, it happens sometimes. But he had plenty of opportunity to play up with those nighttime UFO scenes and with the mothership at the end to play up lens flare. And I don't think he did intentionally. So no, J.J. Abrams definitely, like with Super 8, mimics uh, Spielberg in certain ways. Um, but I don't think lens flare is something he got from Spielberg. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. I think he misremembers lens flares from Close Encounters. Like in his mind, they're in there. Well, you know, because I went back and watched that scene, and they're they're not, J.J. If that's what you're thinking, J.J. Abrams, they're, they're not. You know, I, I really do applaud him, though, for making it his own. Like, he, he owns it. Uh, he, he He's willing to admit <laughs> that, yeah, it's something he did because he thought it looked cool. And I, I wish he hadn't backed away from it. I think out of focus things look cool, so all my movies are going to be out of focus. That's been done. I mean, they're sure, absolutely. That can be a visual flair, yeah. I think bad acting looks cool. <laughs> uh, save it for another 3 by 3 Dennis, <laughs> give us your, your number three favorite lens flare, because I can't wait to hear from you, like, what possessed yeah. you to do this as a topic. So, Dennis, this is mostly on you. What do you got for us? Well, I've already told you what possessed me to do this as a topic, because I felt... Um, and when I say challenged, I mean that in a positive way by you, uh, saying that it's a stylistic choice. So I started right. to to think about, well, what are the – let me look at why this bothers me. Let me kind of dig into that and try to figure out, well, why are the directors making this choice to take me out of the movie? Because that's always how I felt about it. Let's just like – I don't know what movie it is we saw. It might have been Gravity where like a drop of water like gloms onto the lens. Um and you're like, oh, no, I know I'm looking through a camera lens. Thanks for reminding me of that. Um, that's, by the way, Alfonso Cuaron playing with this idea of documentary filmmaking, which he also does in Children of Men with blood on the lens. Like, I think oh. that's one of his signature things where he kind of wants to do that to evoke documentary filmmaking. Oh, I um, forgot that. And you're right. There is gravity. On, there is water on the lens and gravity. But I think he kind of – I don't know if he deserves a break – but I think, like J.J. Abrams with Lens Flare, he kind of owns that concept, and there's a reason for him doing that, I think. Okay, but... But you're, you're right. I mean, that's another instance is when you have the water on the, the lens. Uh, yeah. But if, but if you're, if you're going to take me out of the movie, I think there has to be a strong reason to do it. And I don't think just because it looks cool is, is reason enough. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm... There's... The problem is my all three of my Pixar movies I really love, so it's hard for me to talk against them. Um, so the, my, my number three is is Stand by Me, uh, and I was surprised by this because um, I expected there to be a lot more of this because of the way that the movie is shot it's very stylistic in the sense of an understanding of this being a memory, and uh, and I. The reason I went to this is because of something else Tom said, and you know a lot of the things I watch are because you know Tom talks about them or he recommends them. You know, I really respect Tom as a film critic, um, and, and you're pretty too, Kelly. Don't worry, you have heart. Um, but one of the things we talked about when we talked about Stand by Me a couple weeks ago was was Tom saying, "Well, this really feels like 
not really a movie about kids, but about an adult's remembering of being a kid. And that's the way the movie is really shot. It's got this kind of gauzy look to a lot of it. Mm. Um, and then the other, there, there are kind of flashbacks within flashbacks that have other styles to them. The, the John Cusack things have an even weirder glow to them. And there's a glow to the movie that's very strange. And I had remembered some sort of lens flares from long shots of the kids walking down the tracks uh, over near the river. And I thought there was lens flare there, but there really isn't very much of it at all. I mean, and I think the it's... Rob Reiner's pretty careful about that in this movie to to really keep the visual composition down to um, this idea of of a memory. It, he doesn't make it sepia toned. He doesn't go that far, but he he does make it a little bit of you know I wouldn't say Vaseline smeared on the lens, but it is kind of that weird gauzy look, um, which I think totally works for Stand by Me. But there's this one scene uh, right after the boys uh, run off the tracks when the train is chasing them, not really chasing them, but you know, um, when they're walking, they're walking through the forest and there's this weird ghostly blue flare that goes over a tree, uh, after the train track, after the train track scene. And it's, and it's very obviously, uh, a camera thing that's happening. That's it's the light hitting the camera in a certain way that makes this kind of blue flare happen over over a tree, and it's just a very slight thing. Um, and I I can't for the life of me think of of why you would include that shot other than necessity. Um, but it does kind of add to that feel of this as a memory in some weird way, like a way that an old photograph uh, that you would look at has. Um, a reflection in the background or or some sort of other visual obscurity or visual defect in it uh, or light defect in it. And so for Stand By Me, I would allow that because of the way you look. You would, If you look at old family photographs, some of that weird light defect uh, happens. Um, so I, so I'm justifying, I'm using this as sort of a justification for this weird blue flare thing that happens. I don't know if you would call it a lens flare, but it is kind of that in Stand By Me. Is it, it's a daylight scene? Yeah. It's probably lens because anytime you're shooting like with the sun, that's, that, that's what most commonly does it. If you're shooting into the sun, if you've got it in front of the plane of the camera, uh, that, that's, I think, going to happen a lot. Right. And what I, what I expected mostly was, that kind of scene, that kind of sun stuff. And I totally, with, I, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, I totally forgot the idea that this would happen at night. When I was couching, when I was putting forth this topic, I didn't even think about the possibilities of stuff that would happen at night, like the stuff that Tom was talking about with close encounters, uh, you know, UFOs and whatnot. Night stuff didn't even occur to me until I started really thinking about the topic. And actually, uh, anyway, I'll talk about that on my second one. Kelly Wand, what is your second uh, favorite instance of lens flare? My number two lens flare pick topic is from the motion picture Alien. In when Ripley's astronaut suit at the end, it's all different from the exploration ones earlier because in those ones, the lens flares on the rock planet represented their aloneness and smallness. But then at the end, uh, the white one lens flare, it's like her jaws set and it's white and the lens flare is bright and white like the suit because the lens represents her going, fuck the stupid alien. 
See, Dingus, we didn't even have to ask him to elaborate. He elaborated yeah. all on his own. Kelly Wan, we're very proud of you. Yeah, we mock, what we, we mock what we don't understand. Lens flare. Uh, all three of mine are actually at night, it occurs to me. Uh, uh, so my number two is where I think J.J. Abrams, he didn't go crazy in this scene, but there's a lot of it that is, I think, very intentional. Uh, if you look at the train wreck in Super 8, which is on YouTube, uh, man, there's a lot of gratuitous lens flare in that. Um so I don't know if that be, where was as crazy as my number one, where he in my number one pick he was actively positioning lights to create lens flare. I believe some of it was CG, um, but you can really see it in the nighttime train wreck in Super Eight. Um, mm. So that is my number two pick. Dingus, what is your second favorite so instance of lens? Yes. What is the camera catching? The lights of the train or the lights of the filming or the stuff they've have they set up lights for filming? Uh, no, no, they're at that abandoned train station. Uh, and but I think they're, they're, they're shooting a scene, lights. right? Yeah, yeah, they're shooting this scene with L. Fanning, Dakota Fanning, L. Fanning. L. Um, yeah, and then the train comes by, uh, and as it starts to, like, derail, I don't know what all the light sources are, because they're just, they're street lights. Yeah, for some reason, he's got enough light sources in there to get lens flare going everywhere. But they should be at this, like, little lone like dimly lit train station in the middle of nowhere. But for whatever reason, we get lots of lens flare there. How come a train has a light on the front, but a plane doesn't? A plane does when it lands. And they're uh, called landing lights. What do you know? Well, it should just be on all the time, just in case. <laughs> What's weird is that cars have backup lights and planes don't. <laughs> yeah, that's weird, too. Kelly Wan, tell Dingus that planes can't go in reverse. Planes, planes can go in reverse. Yep. Okay. Yeah. What do you think happened when Superman uh, reversed time? Oh, good point. Right. I guess when time goes backward, planes do go backward as well. He's not a plane or a bird. Dingus, yeah. uh, what is your? Uh, no, wait. That, no, that was mine. Dingus, what is your second? I think Superman's a bird. He's not up that high. That's what I'm thinking. It's a bird. Oh, it's Superman. And you're off by 20,000 feet. All right, sorry. What were you saying, things? <laughs> I just want to make fun of something from the 1950s really quick. All right, my second one is from the movie I Am Legend. And um, what I what did you say? Did you say ooh? Yeah, I don't like that movie. Oh, I love it so much. The I more I legend. see it, yeah, the more I see it, the more I like it. I mean, I, I get disappointed in, in some of where it goes, but I just, oh, man. I just love the way it's shot. I love the relationship with Sam so much. I love um, Sam. And I think awesome. you are Sam. Go ahead and well, say, I am. Yeah, never mind. Um, and I really do love uh, Will Smith in this movie. Um, what I was expecting and what I was hoping for or thinking that I would hopefully find, because I watched a lot of things and just couldn't find a lot of stuff, um, was this moment where, you know, because sunlight plays such an important part in this movie, um, when the the uh, the lead uh, infected zombie Dash Mihawk character comes out and screams that because of the, the light out there, the light trap, that you would see like this lens flare coming out because of the the brightness of the light coming down on him, and. Uh, and I was totally wrong. That there, there's nothing there. The lens flare that surprised me, and I was not expecting this at all, um, is lens flare from a flashlight. Uh, and, and this is uh, when um, 
Will Smith's character goes in after Sam, after Sam goes into the dark uh, building, uh, and he's trying to find Sam, and goes in and is like going through the building, going through the building, going through the building, and he's got the flashlight, and he keeps capping it with his hand and uncapping it, and he he raises it at one point, and it flashes on a mirror, and there's this like star, almost star pattern of lens flare that happens when he does it on the mirror, and it's so startling, it's it's shocking. It's this this oh my god, that's this thing around the corner that I didn't see coming, um, and so. When I think about what Francis Lawrence was trying to do and trying to justify the stylistic choice here, um, I think it's this maybe this thing that happens when you, if you can imagine yourself being in this frightening horror situation and you accidentally shine a flashlight and find yourself in a mirror. Um, and I think maybe the lens flare there is a product of that because I think that a lot of times flashlights provide that in movies, and this is not something I considered going in. Um, and so anyway, that moment in I Am Legend, when he accidentally shines on the mirror and it flares. Taiwan, it is time for your favorite lens flare of all time. Better than in, better than lens flare in any other movie, what do you got for us? In Disorderlies, <clears throat> the fat boys eat pizza and they drink beer, and all the labels are swathed in lens flares. Um, that obscure the product placement, um, which is like a symbol that lens flares are like product placement because you're like your eyes drawn to them, but they're also irritating. Okay, when well, I think you invented all of that, the fat boys. <laughs> okay, that part you did. Well, fair enough. Well, they couldn't digitize back in the days of all you can eat. They had to use lens flares to make yeah. that point. Yeah, that's right. what you're making. Up. That's the part I'm saying you made up. Or a sharpie. They do drink beer. Do uh, they drink no, I don't even believe that. I'm, I'm just you're making that up as well. Do they drink eight balls? Things are so straight. That's yeah. so racist. My favorite lens flare is Star Trek, the 2009 one, where J.J. Abrams just went hog wild. The whole movie has got lens flare. If you go to YouTube, you can look up uh, videos cut together, because it's been out long enough, of all of the lens flare, something like ten minutes of it, uh, and it's just crazy. It's insane. Uh, especially when you know to look for it. And I love that about Star Trek. I love the way Star Trek looks. Like, <laughs> in space, you get lens flare because you're pointing the camera <laughs> at stars. You know, there's a star shooting the light right into the lens. Yeah, lens flare is going to happen. Um, crazy things happen with light in space. You can't just have space be black like it really is. So you do cool things with, like, lens flare and whatever. So, J.J. Abrams, in space, on the deck of the Enterprise, in Iowa, all that stuff. Lens flare everywhere. Um, and it's beautiful, and it's a, it's it's distinct, you know. J.J. Abrams carved out a place for himself, and maybe not in every movie, but stop apologizing for it. And he didn't do it uh, in a Dark World or whatever, or Dark Into Darkness. Like he he let up on it. Uh, he backed off. Well, lens flares aren't dark. Fair enough. Well, maybe he'll get back into it in the Star Wars movie. He went fog wild. Mm, nope, that doesn't apply, Kelly Wan. Mm. The lightsabers are just going to be lens flares. Do lightsabers cause lens flare? Obviously not, because the light is self-contained. Ow! Equator! Do lightsabers cause lens flare? Go! Lightsaber! Because what is your favorite lens flare from a movie? Obviously, it's better than Stand By Me, better than I Am Legend. What do you got for us? My favorite one is, and I thought of this one right off the top, 
Um, but what I didn't know is this director is notorious for it in a similar way that J.J. Abrams is. Um, I had no idea about this, and watching this movie again, it is rife with lens flare, and when I think about my other favorite of this director's movies, it has a bunch of them too, and I just didn't it didn't occur to me. I just forgave both of these movies for this, uh, and it's clear that John John McTiernan is doing this on purpose a lot. Um, and this is in the movie Die Hard. My favorite, my absolute fa- favorite lens flare is when the uh, when the vault opens, um, when Theo finally opens the vault and he says "Merry Christmas," and you hear the uh, "Ode to Joy" really crank up. The camera moves a little, moves a little back, and you see Hans. Um, right behind Hans is this weird light showing back into the vault, and it just this amazing lens flare that looks like it could have been drawn with colored pencils or something. It's so precise that goes back behind his head. Uh, that lens flare is beautiful, and I I think uh, again I'm kind of justifying here because I'm trying to think of stylistic choices for this. Uh, for this, it's very ornamental, uh, and also uh, that. You know, Die Hard has this reputation as being uh, an awesome Christmas movie, and so there's this. For me, there's this that, this feeling of that behind uh, Alan Rickman. Uh, this this feeling of of wonder of this vault being opened, and oh my God, this is a Christmas present. This is the birth of Jesus. This is the m- most important moment in our lives. And this lens flare behind him that is just so... It looks like laser beams, really. It looks like lightsabers. Um, that's my favorite. But when you look at Die Hard again, and again, you know, it, I, I don't really tend to search much for these things, but I, was, I couldn't watch uh, the actual scene this week. Um, but if you look for it, if you look for lens flares and die hard, you see them all over the place. Um, it, oh my god, it just looks so great. It's it, it's really a great looking moment. But I still don't quite understand why they're doing it, and I still don't quite understand the stylistic choice. So I kind of have to feel like I kind of have to justify it. I mean, I frankly, I don't. Your eye at a certain point doesn't see it, and you just subconsciously register it as as a sign of fidelity you know there are filters they're like photoshop filters to add lens flare to photographs um oh really yeah yeah i mean it's it's uh it, it's, again, it's, it's a sign because there's this sense of looking through a lens is more real than looking through your eyes oh and that's just that's you know walker percy is a, a writer from the south uh who uh, lived in New Orleans, but he loved writing about movie making in Hollywood. Uh, he talked about this, uh, and then he used a word that I'm going to space on, but he talked about movies as having this, uh, they're more real than real or something like that. No, that's Blade Runner. Dadgummit. Uh, at any rate, uh, <laughs> movies have a different level of reality. They're, they're above reality. Um, and that, you know, that, that evokes that when you see something. It becomes super real if it's got lens flare. It's as super real as a movie. Um, oh, okay. I think I think it makes sense because I mean, it's like there's no way a camera could be there. So if it is, it must mean that it's really happening. Is I think what yeah, you're it, because cameras record something. Right. This is like right. a real thing that's inside this camera, and now I'm seeing it come it out. Can't be you a know, CG building. Right. I mean, and that's the thing. So when you do CG, you put in lens flare to make it look like a camera because people think cameras are real. I mean, people know cameras are real. That's a real thing your eye really sees. You know, yeah. the, the light hits the, the glass, and 
Yeah, it's 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 just it's a it's an inevitability of using glass to record an image. Um, but not every shot has that problem. No, it's only when the glass when the uh, the light hits it at a certain angle. Right. It has to do too with like the uh, the comp- like basically glass is made out of crystals and some of them aren't uh, pure enough for something. Uh, so they refract. And it creates lens flare, and our eyes don't do that because our eyes aren't made of crystal. They're made of, like, protein, and so we don't have that equipment when we see things directly. But when we see these things recorded that we know happened in front of a camera somewhere, they really happened, uh, that lens flare is there. So, yeah, there's a Photoshop filter to add lens flare. Like, photographers play with it a lot. Mm. Which is also made of crystals. All right, Dingus, what do the listeners have for us? All right. Paul Weimer has to say, three favorite choices of lens flare, not my favorite technique in movies, and I tried to avoid the two biggest directors who use it. Here goes. In Hot Fuzz, we get some lens flare action when Angel first enters the pub, as a car headlight blinds him just as he spotted an underage patron. Uh, I don't remember Hot Fuzz enough to remember this, Paul. Sorry. I don't even know who Angel is. Someone in Hot Fuzz is named Angel. Apparently. Huh. That's Simon Pegg's character's name? Angel. Wow. Okay. Angel? All right. Paul Weimer's number two in Blade Runner. The flying car spinners with their very bright top lights contrasted against the darkly lit movie flare again and again. Yeah. Sexy 80s nighttime vibe. Yep. Yeah. Sexy 80s nighttime vibe. Uh, Paul's number one in Logan's Run. Mm. Oh, wow. Jessica and Logan wind up walking into a massive and overwhelming lens flare, briefly blinding the viewer as to who they've met, who they've next met on their journey to sanctuary. A necessary precaution on the part of the people they are about to meet, you see. Right. Wait, who do they meet? Which part? I don't know. Who? He doesn't say. He's not going to spoil that for us. Oh, boss. Um, as always, thanks for the podcast and letting me play along. Sure thing, Paul. Uh, Arthur Giovangeli, Lone Survivor. <laughs> Tom's favorite, Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> that's where, that's what really brought me around to Taylor Kitsch. Yeah, uh, fair enough, Kelly Wand. I should watch it. <laughs> this might be the only time I've noticed this. It happens as the soldiers are hiking a mountain. I remember thinking, boy, I bet that would annoy Dingus. <laughs> what? This, <laughs> Dingus hates what? it when soldiers hike up mountains. Why? Wait, I don't remember this. When did that happen? Why? I think he means the lens flare. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, no. <laughs> sorry, I wasn't expecting to read that. I remember thinking, boy, that went annoying. This that was sounds probably like <laughs> the only thing in this pandering film that made an impression on me. <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. And the movie does pander to Taylor Kitsch fans. I will admit that. Yeah. Dingus hates hikers? <laughs> yeah. That's fucked up. And thus, I hate myself. Wait till we get to next week's podcast, which is going to be be about hikers. Ooh. Spoiler, spoiler. alert. Yeah. Just teasing Jeez. next week. It's not spoiler. I'm teasing next week's podcast. Uh, teaser alert. Yeah. Uh, next Those are climbers. Uh, they're, they're, well, <laughs> fair enough. That's kind of rude to call them hikers, isn't it, Kelly Wand? That's rude. Yeah. Wait, is, that, is, so there a hier- is there a hierarchy? I don't think mountain climbers like to be called hikers. <laughs> I mean, I've gone hiking before. I've never climbed a mountain, though. I, yeah. It would be awesome to say to Tom Cruise at the beginning of Mission Impossible 2, how's your hike? <laughs> I hike with pitons and ropes. By the way, what, what did 
what defines okay. hiking? My theory is that anytime you you are going to walk on dirt when you don't have to, when you voluntarily yeah. walk on dirt, that makes it hiking. It, yeah. Do you guys uh, agree with my my definition? So if you get dumped in the wilderness so, and you have yeah. to walk out, you're hiking. Yeah, all right. Basically, yeah, you got to hike out of the wilderness. I mean, it's not you always falling. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you just walk, you go for a walk. If you're going on a sidewalk, if you're just going around the, the block, if you're going down a city street, you walk in New York. Um, but you hike in the Hollywood Hills, for instance. Um, what, what's Hollywood a trail? What's a trek? A trek, is, is, a trek is when it's really start. long. It's like when it takes over four hours. Five years. No, no, no. Well, you can do five year. A five year voyage could be a trek. But as long as it's over four hours, it's a trek. Yeah. What if you take the stairs instead of the elevator? So you're taking. It's you're a walk. Doing- you're walking up the stairs, Kelly. By my definition, I've got that covered. It's not dirt. You're walking. It has to be dirt. What if they're dirty stairs? Uh, that's a good point, but they'd have to be. I, I'm talking about the, take a the, look. I'm talking about the foundation, not what's sprinkled on top of it. So, you, you almost got me there. <laughs> like the lens flares being closed circuit television. Unlike Speaking stairs. of lens flare, what else does Arthur Giovanginelli have for us, Dingus? That's, that's all he had, and I oh. appreciate him sending in that one. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed our response. You're welcome. Next, we have another awesome listener name, Simon Desmacht. Nice. Best. This should have been discussed in depth by this point in the podcast. J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. This article, and he gives us a link. Uh, This article in The Guardian and its video count over 700 uses of the technique. I, I do hope Abrams' forthcoming Star Wars flick feels less like a trip to the opticians. I prefer to be able to see what the actors are doing without blinding lights assaulting my eyes. I do give a thumbs up to the lens flare in gravity, which isn't overused and makes sense. It gives the harshness of the light a level of realism one might expect with no atmosphere and only a helmet glass to distort your view. I don't remember that, but I guess that would make sense. It makes me think of sunshine. Was there lens flare and sunshine? Sounds like something Danny Boyle would play with. I bet there was. Yeah, yeah. Right solar panel. I mean, you're flying right into the sun. It's hard enough when you're shooting into the sun, you're going to get lens flare. If you have a whole movie about moving towards the sun, you're probably going to get a lot of lens flare. Should just be called lens flare the movie. (laughs) I would see that, by the way. I know. As a J.J. Abrams lens flare apologist, I would go to a movie that's called lens flare. Starring Taylor Kitsch and Josh Holloway. Ah, oh, the movie of my dreams. Wow. <laughs> Listen to how he said it. <laughs> you don't want Anson... Oh. Uh, oh, can Anson Mount have a role in this movie, Kelly? Yeah, and James Marston is also... I wonder, are there any chicks in this movie? Um, uh, Veronica Cartwright? Yes, sweet. Nice. And Brie Larson. Nicer! See? It's called Tom Chick. No, it's called Lens Flare. Don't change the lens title. Lens Flare. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's written. It's Tom Chick's Lens Flare. <laughs> Am I leaving anybody out? Veronica uh, Cartwright, uh, Allison Brie. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> you are leaving out Fred and Lynn, who are our next contributors. Uh, hi, so. Dingus et al. Uh, Fred, Bo, and Lynn with two films that use Lens Flare, lens flare to good effect. Number two. Totally works in Die Hard. Number one. <laughs> a rainy night in Los Angeles, 2019. The lens flares caused be the running lights 
on the flying cars totally add to the atmosphere of Blade Runner. Nice. Oh, word, Fred and Lynn. Sorry, they got scooped though. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, Dave Perkins. Here's a quote. Sam, Sam, Sam. Oh, damn it, Dave. Sam, 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 Sam. Come on. Sam, Sam, Sam. I am legend. All right. Yeah, okay, you got me. You got me, Dave. As he enters the building to find his dog, Sam, Will Smith fires up the flashlight on his gun. The next camera shot is from deep within the first room. Smith is a small figure in the distance. His voice barely hisses as he calls for Sam. And the light on his gun stabbing this way and that. The light sweeps twice across a shard of broken glass in the foreground, lens flaring both times. I thought it was a mirror. Uh, immediately, the camera views changes up tight against Smith's back as he moves deeper into the building. We've just been blinded by the lens flare from the glass, which makes the tiny cone of light from his gun seem so inadequate in the pitch blackness of the building. A beat or two later, Smith's light sweeps into a mirror, okay, and he lens flares the shit out of himself. That's two amazing lens flares in 60 seconds of the same terrifying scene. More later, I hope, but right now, Sam, we gotta go! Alright, so Dave, Dave's choosing, um, I didn't, I don't remember, I don't, you know, and I watched this scene, I don't remember that first one, but he's probably right. Well, and he gets my mirror one. He got scooped though, sorry Dave. No, no. I, I consider Dave, uh, in the lead here. Uh, oh, Dave, okay, uh, here's a separate email from Dave. Um, number two. Here's a quote. Dad, you said you would be back. It's rubbish on the radio. Mom's doing sausages and all. Uh, Locke is 90 minutes of reflections in car windows. Oh, God. That's actually good. Uh, many of which blossoms into lens flares. I've only seen the movie once, but I remember that each lens flare highlighted some kind of tension that was spiking at that moment. This is especially memorable to me when police cars would rush past Locke. Their lights always flaring horizontally and blindingly. Every time it happened, I wondered if some kind of terrible future was ahead. Like when cop cars are rushing forward... Rushing toward a city where a zombie infection is spreading. Hmm. That's funny. I didn't even think of that. Hmm. Wait. Okay. Wait, what? You didn't think of the cop car connection? Or no, I didn't think of, 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 the, of the idea of the headlights. Again, I came to the idea of nighttime flashlights, that kind of thing. Now that I think about it, is there Richard Dreyfuss flashlight in... Um, Plus counters. counters. Um, or oh, even Jaws the when they're in Jaws when they're looking for uh, uh, Ben Gardner's, ben Gardner's boat. boat in Matt Hooper's boat that whole oh. sweeping the the headlight over the water. Yeah, oh. it's a boat chase. So so I didn't think about headlights, and I certainly wouldn't have thought about Locke. But that's um, UFOs look good. like lens flares. I don't know. I would have to watch it again. I mean, you know. A lot of that is because it's raining when he's driving, right? I didn't Sometimes. remember that it was raining, yeah. Oh, maybe not. Yeah. They shot all in one night, so it would have had to have been raining in That's RL. Not, that is totally not true. Is that I true? read it. Bond? Yeah. They shot lock I guess if you shoot it like a play, maybe so. All right. In sequence. They shot it in one night? Are you yeah. serious? Yep. I read that. All right. Well, which seems which seems totally needless. So that's interesting. So it's if just you like just acting, if you're like if you're shooting through a windshield, um, and there's 
drops of water on the windshield, and then you see light coming through that, there's no way to avoid lens flare. I don't know if water causes lens flare. I don't know. Does it? But it. Does, I don't know. It, it, all right. Yeah. Anyway, this it's a cool it's a cool choice, Dave. Thanks. Uh, next we have Justin D. Hurd. Uh, only one this week, but it instantly came to mind. Blade Runner. The effects team struggled with the spinners and making them look like they were flying. It wasn't until they forced the lens flare that they finally made the effect stick. Every other use of lens flare just feels like it's about to trigger my next migraine. Well, I like that little bit of, uh, of trivia, Justin. Thank you. And medical knowledge. <laughs> the more you know. Yeah. All right, we have Chris Markinson next. Hey, guys. Uh, it wasn't too hard to find a few instances of lens, uh, a few instances of lens flare that I really liked, but it was a heck of a lot harder to try and figure out why the director made the choice to keep it in the shot. Number three, gravity. When Sandra Bullock goes careening off into space, most of the shots are up close on her face and helmet. You know, this is me talking now. I, that's one of my favorite parts of that movie, the way that he chose to lock in on her face. Um, anyway, back to what uh, Chris was saying. Uh, there's just a small amount of screen that is dedicated with showing the space background, and as Bullock continues to spin, you can see the Earth and Sun rotate into view every few seconds, along with a lens flare after the Sun comes into view. As At the start of the movie, before everything starts going wrong, you see no lens flare at all, and it's only once things go to hell that you get the lens flare showing up. I think I'm probably reaching and looking for a connection there. More than likely, Cron just thought it looked cool. Number two, in Ex Machina, Ava leaves the compound, and she is walking through the foliage, and you see lens flare from the sun. Oh, okay, I remember that, yeah. Um, this doesn't happen when Caleb helicopters into the area at the start of the movie as the sky is overcast. It's certainly possible that this was just weather on the days they were shooting, but I like to think that the lens flare is symbolic of Ava seeing the sun for the first time, and the brilliance of it. Yeah, that's a damn good justification, Chris. Um, number one. This movie starts out with a screen completely black. Oh, okay, I think. And then there is a small point of light that starts to grow as a Gordon soundtrack. Where do you think he's going with this? Obviously, the uh, 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 Jonathan Glazer's... Uh, shoot, what is it called? <laughs> with Scarlett um, Johansson. I can't remember the title. Yeah, Superficial. Under the skin. Superficial? Yeah. Superficial is the opposite of what it is. Yeah. The opposites, yeah. It's it's subficial. Um, Chris, this is great. You you informed us. This is like uh, what happened when uh, Kelly Wan did his opsis, his IMDb opsis. Very good, Chris. Um, Then the small point of light gets suddenly much larger and much, much brighter to the point where there are several very large lens flares. I really like this opening to Under the Skin, and if I had to hazard a guess as to why the lens flare is there, I would say that perhaps it is to emphasize the act of creation that is happening. Thanks, guys, Chris. That's excellent. I really like that. Uh, His sun comparison is good because it's commonly associated with the sun, and did you guys, you know that scene where we meet Dr. Dre as a teenager laying on his back listening to a song called Everybody Loves the Sun. Yeah. Uh, F. Gary Gray just watched that whole scene in Lens Flare. Yeah. It's totally a sun-associated thing a lot, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and finally, we have Nick D. Hi, guys. For me, a Lens Flare has never been something which takes me out of a movie. All right, Nick, you and I are now enemies. 
Uh, I think I internalized the idea that I'm looking at the story through a camera. So he's in the Tom camp. Fine, Nick. And lens flares becomes a way to call attention to the idea that the light is so bright, it is literally piercing through the screen at me. Here are my favorite examples of those. Number three, The Natural. Oh, this is good. Okay, cool. At the climax of this movie, Robert Redford hits a home run, which flies right into the stadium lights. And there are some wonderful lens flares as he rounds the bases, lights exploding all around him. Number two, Aliens. When Hicks and Vasquez use their blowtorches to seal a door shut, for some reason, I always remember the lens flares that came out of the torches. Ripley even tells Newt to cover her eyes because the light is so bright. Number one, close encounters of the third kind. During the climactic scene where the humans are communicating with the mothership with music, the notes are accompanied by flashing lights. Interestingly, the lights on the mothership give off lens flares, whereas the lights on the human's display do not. Cheers, Nick. Uh, that's all we've got. And so, you guys, do you have any runners-up? Uh, F. Gary Gray's Straight Outta Compton. That's my runner-up. <laughs> Very good. The whole movie? No, the scene with uh, Dr. Trey. Oh. As, as a teenager, listening to Everybody Loves the Sun. Mine's The Fountain and Homeworld and um, Far Cry 2. What's Homeworld? Oh, Kelly's veered into video games. Uh Uh-oh. I think video games do it to make us think we're watching movies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's part of it's the visual fidelity that people expect. Uh, This really happened in front of a camera. Uh, So, yeah, video games absolutely do it, and they have to manufacture it. Um, this is another another of those moments when I have to highlight my favorite ways Tom pronounces words. The visual what? what? Flair. Visual. Oh, fidelity. Fidelity. Okay. Wait, fidelity. how do you say it? How do you guys say fidelity. it? It's like fidelity. Wi-Fi, Hi-Fi. Why do, what do you call a high-fidelity system for short? Hi-Fi. Hi-Fi. Yeah, thank yeah. you. High-fidelity. But, but sci-fi. So, uh, and science fiction. did not call their album high-fidelity. That's what I call it. No, you don't. <laughs> What's the name of the John Cusack movie? High Five No, you don't. Uh, all right. It's called Windmill. Uh, let's uh, uh, go to Kelly Wand now for next week's 3x3, three three, the moment we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I will now announce it. <laughs> the three best. Next week, what I want from you guys is the three best lens JK uh, three best <laughs> musical cues that's it go if you wish to participate in this contest write your submissions to 3x3 at quarter to three dot com is that right uh, close enough. Uh, what what do you Can mean you, musical cues? Because we've done like use of songs. Like we, what? We need to elaborate. Effects. What do you mean yeah. by musical cues? Dun dun dun. Like that. So you're talking about sound, the soundtrack, like the, the music in the movie? <laughs> oh, look out! It's uh, what's this fuck? 
like stuff like that. It looks like there's no hope after all. Flash, uh, like that, like a musical cue. So we've done sound effects and we've done songs, but we've never done musical cues. Whole different Can category. I just pick the the point? My three favorite songs in movies. The point when those songs started for my picks next week. Well, I'm gonna be a little bit more of a hard ass cop. I'm oh, nice, Ron. Yeah, I'm going to be a straight-out-of-Compton cop. Oh, you're like you're the only gang on this podcast, yeah. Yeah, and if you stand or you have a burger in your hand, I'm going to knock it out of your hand. <laughs> Fuck with me. <laughs> I'll tell you when you can stand. It's not music, Tom, what you're doing. You are not art- an artist, all right? You're a, you're a banger. Fair enough. All right. No, I look forward to this. Get this, on the ground. This newly draconian Kelly Wan 3x3. I cannot wait. Had enough of your lip. All right. Kelly Draconian is going to be your new name. Uh, and while we're at it, let next week let's also do a podcast on Everest, the new uh, thing. Is, say the director's name. I How in the world are we going to get up there? Uh, no, we'll see. see there's going to be a movie, and it might have Lindsay Dingus to remind you that it's only a movie. You said we're going to do a, a podcast on Everest. You just said that. I know, Dingus. Who directed? That, that would be too hard for us to do a remote location like that. Kelly Wand is in Germany. You're in one room in this house. I'm in another. Wait, the logistics, Dingus. It would never work. The sheer fidelity of it. <laughs> so speaking of pronunciations, Dingus, uh, say this director's name. It's Baltazar Cormacher. Very good. All right. And I, I would. Have, I think I was going to say something like Cormacher. I would have been close. No, because the accent is on the accent is on the A, so it's Cormacher. Cormacher. Okay, good. I think I got it now. Kelly Wan, we're going to challenge you to pronounce his name next week. So, so study up on this. Martha Marcy. The German U with the dots over it, it's pronounced U. Oh. <laughs> so I, practice bet that. I bet you've heard that a lot, Kelly. Does Tom? Yeah, I have. All right, and so also China, Germany. Yes, yes, go ahead, Kelly Wan. More, more fun facts about Germany. Give us one more before we, we close the podcast out. Uh, oh. I was just going to say, yeah, Dingus, question? I, I wanted to give two audience things that I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Oh, during the movie, during straight up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, want, I want this. Before yes. and after, or uh, right after the movie, if I could. Yes. Uh, as I was leaving, these two old white people were walking out in front of me, <laughs> and they were talking about Ice Cube, just like how he's portrayed in the movie and how, how excited they were. And the man said, now I know why he's so angry. <laughs> That's <fucking> awesome. <laughs> She fell. He fell for it. Damn it! Old people are so fucking easy. And then as I, as I walked out of the theater, and this is something that Tom has <laughs> talked about many times in the past. I don't think I've witnessed it as much as Tom has. But this really tall white dude walked up to the was walking up to the um, to the ticket uh, seller, and he and as I walked out the door after seeing Straight Outta Compton, I heard this guy lean in and go to the ticket taker, "Which do you like more?" Rogue Nation or Compton? <laughs> Wait, what was the answer? Yeah, Davis, don't, don't, don't keep us hanging. And what, what ethnicity was the answer? They're both white guys. I didn't, uh, unfortunately, I should have stopped and listened, but I was just walking and I just started laughing yeah. too hard to be able to stop. I, I like to think that they went into straight out of Compton. But yeah. I just love this guy leaning forward. Which do you like more, Rogue Nation or Compton? <laughs> Uh, all right, so join us for our hey, Everest. Wait, Kelly yes. was going to say something about Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah. So hey, here's a fun fact about Germany I bet you listeners didn't know. Kelly, over to you. Uh, my favorite word that Tom says is prudent. 
He likes to say that a lot when we play video games and board games. So I wouldn't be prudent. And uh, so since the German U has the dots over it, if Tom was German, he'd say, it wouldn't be prudent. Thank you, Kelly Wan. It's a good thing. Pretty I'm, cool, huh? Yeah, but I'm an American, so I say it correctly. That's uh, a fact about Germany. Thank you, Kelly Wan. Yeah. Next week, we'll do a podcast on Everest. We will do our 3 by 3 on uh, musical cues uh, with a really strict 3 by 3 cop. So no shenanigans from you listeners. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Milicinsnaski. Uh, it's Christian Moroski. And we also had Kelly Wand. Bitch better have my money. Bitch better have my money. Police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one. For a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe to toe in the middle of a sale. Fucking with me because I'm a teenager with a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the plotter. Thinking every nigga is selling narcotics. You'd rather see me in the pen than me and Lorenzo rolling. I am Sam. Well, there goes the talent, Dre.